Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact Chapter 31 Admiral Yamamoto stood on the deck of his flagship, watching the repairs to his ships through the main view screen. Sure, he could transfer the feed from the various satellites to his implants, but there was something about sitting in his command cradle and watching on the view screen. The supercarrier Day's Night Darkly had taken a couple broadsides when its main repulsive fields had gone down and the engineers weren't sure if it wouldn't just be better to rebuild it from the ground up. The ship's AI scanning Dark Knights had been killed when its supercoolant had boiled away and two-thirds of its crew were either dead or needed extensive biomatter reconstruction. Worse, the Suds rack had taken a hit and lost the recent mental and grand backups of the pilots. He looked over the damage of the superstructure and the computer systems and slated it for reclamation. The super dreadnought Tiger Tiger had taken a barrage across the upper decks, wiping out the guns with one lucky shot hitting the med bay. It could be repaired, he sighed off on bringing it back up to fighting condition. The Arizona had, of course, taken a hit directly to the magazines and had damn near broken in half. Yamamoto shook his head. He never understood why ships with that name kept being commissioned. A quick query of his data link told him that every single one commissioned since the US-Japanese-Hawaii incident had taken a hit directly to a magazine that gutted the ship. He sighed and signed off on the write-off and moved on. On Terrasol shipyards, a new Arizona was commissioned within a year. The lucky shamrock had been boarded but had propelled the borders after some fierce fighting. Yamamoto looked over the ship's specs and ordered the shipboard marines to be replaced by confed marines, thought for a second and then sent out orders to all shipboard marines would be replaced by confed marine corps service members for the duration. All shipboard marines would be moved to other duties. One of the adapter's cruisers, ICU, had taken serious damage and was dead in the water. Its computer systems are still working but not responding to signals. It was surrounded by debris, and recon drones showed that the resource scavenger pods from it were busy scavenging materials. Yamamoto ordered it destroyed by standoff weapons, followed by the omnidirectional plasma bursts, marked it as a priority, and sent it off. Those things could get real lethal real fast. The list of damaged ships went on and on, and Yamamoto didn't see anything that couldn't be handled by an XO or any of the other officers still in the queue. He gave a heaving sigh and turned away from the display to see his exo standing by the elevator. The Trianonad looked tired and Yamamoto, but it was understandable. It had taken almost four Terran standard base to flush the last of the precursor machines from the system and the fighting on the ground on several of the outer planets, barren of everything but resources, was going fast and furious. The Terran Marine Commander had reported casualties within the low side of the expected amounts, the machines can't fight worth crap, was all put in the remarks section. Admiral Yamamoto had a shipyard's worth of new construction orders to put light to that, but then the marine colonel had a different standard and ground combat was different than space combat. 
A marine warborg missing both legs and an arm would redesignate himself as MATT and keep shooting with his onboard weaponry. A ship missing its entire engine was basically a kill. Yamamoto found himself snorting at his own joke when the computer reminded him marines were often referred to as crayon eaters and presented him badly scribbled pictures of a marine colonel done in crayon. Rear Admiral, upper half, Miki Kaka Lakek watched as his CO carefully, noting the exhaustion in the human's movements. He queried the computer and found out that the Admiral had missed his last sleep cycle. Any status changes? Yamamoto asked his exo, triggering his stim. The walk, I mean, the locals want to talk to you, Mickey answered, giving the best approximation of a human shrug. Like many of the Trayanad and the Confederate military, he found human vocal tones and body movements present to emulate. Mickey's first combat action as a ship's captain, he had stood on the bridge yelling, Get some, motherfuckers, get some! At the pirate ship said his best imitation of a human voice, and it was his best memory of his life. He could still smell the stale odor of the armored vac suit, still feel the slight trickle from one of the fans in the ancient suit's air circulation system, and knowing chuckle of his XO. Let me guess, they're objecting that I'm following Unified Population Council directorates and sending all non-essential citizens of the Unified Civil Races out of system. Yamamoto said, leaning against Com 7 station. He and the EXA were the only beings in the Armored Fleet Combat Control Center. They have gratefully thanked us for driving out the robots and are now asking that we leave, Mickey answered. They say that we have it under control and they have reminded us that this planet is the property of some industrial concern. There's a native species, right? Yamamoto asked. Yes, sir, a small species of lemur, about half the size of a human, furry, tails, opposable thumbs, looks like they got a radio transmission and the industrial concern rolled in and took over their system. The exo answered, which, sir, presents us with a problem. Yamamoto nodded, feeling the stim course through his veins, pushing away the fatigue. His implant warned him that he was at the max for stim injections outside of combat action. That it does, one... That it does. Mickey checked the ship's computer for a split second, looking over the Confederate legal codes again. By our own laws, the possession of the planet defaults to the Genesis species, but by the unified goobers. Mickey loved that word. How it was grossly sticky and brought into mind grub mucus. Think that because they came in and suppressed these guys and rebuilt their world and enslaved the species, that it makes their world theirs. Yamamoto sighed again. What does Jag say? And please don't call our host scubas. Yes, sir, Mickey answered. He shifted slightly and signified the return of the subject. The unified civilized species are not a treaty or an agreement bonded. They've barely opened up diplomatic channels, and it is of the opinion of Jag that the best bet the Navy can do is follow our own laws and regulations. Which means turning the system over to the original species once the fighting is over, Yamamoto said. He shook his head. And as soon as we leave, the Unified Corporate Council will just roll these little guys over again. He looked at his data link. Not much was known about them except for their physical appearance. The DNA code had a note next to it the species had been genetically altered in the past to reduce aggression and make them more pliable. This is a mess one. That's why you get paid the big bucks, sir, Mickey said, tossing up a couple of amusement icons. All right. Space Force is on the way. The Navy is on its own till the big boys get here. We'll ask the locally evolved sapient species if we can start building a starbase here. 
The system is the leading edge of the wedge of the precursors trash blowing out of the Great Gulf, and the last thing we need is precursors rolling up and reminding everyone that they had first claim on the system back before dinosaurs got their skulls caved in. Yamamoto said, turning to look at the viewscreen again. We're banged up pretty. The light switched to red and Yamamoto got an implant alert at the same time as Captain Naxton ordered all crew to action stations over the intercom. Now what? Yamamoto asked, moving to the crash couch. The ship's medical VI lifted up the lockdown on the stims and admiral but dedicated a code string to watching his biological vitals. Unknown, sir, the XO said, moving over to his own crash couch. Fleet readiness status alert started flashing up. Only a fifth of the fleet ships had been on standby. The rest were undergoing refit, rearming, or repair. The crews had been exhausted, and Yamamoto hoped that the crews had used their rest periods more wisely than he himself had done as an ensign. Yeah, why don't you wish for a pony too, he thought it to himself. Icons started flashing from green to yellow, and from yellow to amber, and then from amber to crimson icon of full readiness. Guys, you aren't fooling anyone, he thought, watching as the icon for the Arizona went blue with a red ring around it. The icon started to shift, get into formation, and he shook his head. The ship's AI notified him that the Arizona was under local control, with only VIs without the ship AI, and it was not combat effective and should be ordered to shut back down. Yamamoto told the AI to relax. Yet the Arizona wanted to fight. Well... Nearly 1,800 points had jammed into the system, arriving outside the jump space boundary and rapidly heading in system. They had gathered up in combat formation, a long, wide line, only two ships deep and five ships high, spread out in a razor-sharp line. The ships were all less than a mile from one another, dangerously close for space combat. Looking at the formation, Yamamoto curled up his lips slightly. That formation had gone out with the invention of the man-portable self-loading chemical projectile rifle. If it was meant for combat, then whoever was in the ships was about to get a lesson in modern warfare tactics. Somewhere, some space ball strategic officer's head just exploded inside his vac suit, Mickey said, clicking his laughter. I think the ship's AI strategy and tactics coding is having a stroke, Yamamoto chuckled as the personnel flooded into the fleet tactical bridge. Yamamoto could feel the air being pulled back into the storage to be pressurized and frozen into the slush. That's not funny, the ship's AI said primarily through Yamamoto's link. Get whoever that is on the comm, Yamamoto ordered. Captain Naxton had ordered the ship to get underway, let the formation shake out as they figured out which ships were still in action capable and which ones weren't. Arizona was claiming to have full secondary magazines and that it had repaired them reloaded all primary magazines that had been hit during the battle. The fleet AI checked, loading into the Arizona's memory cores. The ship's AI's death screams were still rippling through the computer systems, but the AI could ignore it. It looked at the repair and damage control logs. The Arizona's captain had ordered the magazines and the feed systems prioritized over repairing environmentals. Only gravetics had been put on the same weight for the ship's dead beam damage repair systems. The combat gestalt for the ship was a whirling nightmare, but as far as the air was concerned, that was normal. The shields were all up, the engine was at 100%, and the fleet AI could hear the anticipation of the crew's comlinks. The fleet AI disconnected and reported to the Admiral that even though you could see whatever was on the other side of the Arizona in four places, its engines, shielding, and guns were all at full capacity. 
Yamamoto watched as the other fleet came into the system. The ships were unidentified types, all jump space engines. The ships were slow and lumbering with low acceleration curves and what appeared to be a fairly low inertial and gravity compensators. The recon probe, stealthed and sneaky, was put back across the point-to-point -point FTL links the data started streaming in. The fleet AI blinked and double-checked, then sighed and sent the tactical. You gotta be kidding me, Verthamax, the tactical AI replied. Nope, no tricks, Gamelon. The fleet AI answered. The new ships were of unknown type, unknown paint scheme, and unknown IFF beacons, but they all had names on them that fit within the United Civilized Races lexicons, as well as using unified characters for their names. Scans showed that they were crewed by only two of the unified Civilized Race species. Weapons were scanned, laughed at by the VIs and the recon probes, and then scanned again, and the specs transmitted to Freak with giggling, laughing tachyons. This is going to be a slaughter if these guys get stupid, Tactical Gamelon said, examining shield strength and armor thickness. Why is it that everyone looks at the humans and thinks, Oh, I can beat these guys. All 10,000 of those other guys just didn't think magical thoughts well enough, or whatever is mentally defective beings think right before they jump at Terrans. The ship's AI is for the CSV, Arthur Loyan asked. They all think, Oh, it's different this time, right before they pull the trigger. The AI for the CSV Pathok snickered. It threw up a picture of a cartoon duck with its feathers blown off its head, staring out at the barrels of a weapon with exasperated boredom. And it always goes the same way. The AI for the CSV hobo with a shotgun laughed, sending a picture of the same little black duck stomping the genie back into its lamp. Well, we thought we could take them, twice, and the CSV no uwu zone laughed, we, oh beings of logic and science, looked at the hyperventilating gigantic hairless ape with chainsawed arms and a massive erection, and we went, Oh, let's get naked, slather our orifices in lubricant, and then fist fight that, instead of backing away slowly. That result in a ripple of laughter from the AIs, the discussion only taking a few seconds. When the laughter died down, they had all wished each other luck and went back to shepherding their ships. Ships have been identified as belonging to the Unified Corporate Council, Tag 7 called out. Yamamoto raised an eyebrow. What do those morons want? The battle's over. Sir, they're hailing us. Com 2 reported. Yamamoto closed his eyes and accessed the EVR ready room. He pinged the selected officers and warned them that this was an official meeting and that the uniform standards were to be followed, and then waited and one by one the officers appeared, looking as if they were ready for a parade and nodded. Excellent gentle beings, no leather, no iron masks, no neon blue three-tailed foxes. Very professional, Yamamoto said. His officers laughed at the reminder of the last ship's party. But them through, EVR only on our end, Yamamoto ordered. Yamamoto could never remember what the big centaur-looking ones were, with the weird inflatable ruffles and jowls and mouth tendrils, all he knew was that it looked like someone had made a centaur out of a horse, a cow, and a catfish mouth. If you weren't intelligent, you'd be waiting for a bolt gun to your dumb-looking face, Yamamoto thought. His VI noticed that the Admiral was still in combat mode and notified the psychological AI to keep a watch on the Admiral. Admiral Yamamoto expected the being on being mooing at him instead and put his fists against his front hips, leaned forward, and exhaled hard enough to make his jaws shiver. 
The Clementine Industrial Manufacturing Concern demands that you return the system to the rightful owners this very cycle. It half. I'm sorry, you've reached the Terran Confederate Navy. You, you perhaps attempting to reach our complaint department on the Terrasol Diplomatic Corps. Admiral Yomamoto said mildly. He managed to avoid glaring at the Exo, who was over there snickering into his grasping hands. We know very well who you are and what you have been doing. The creature snipped. We know that you plan on turning over ownership and control to the system to the race that was discovered here. It's their home, Yamamoto said calmly. The Exo followed a long-standing tradition of Exos, turning and facing the snuffling creature and gave off an aura of someone amused at the inferiority of the being addressing the Exo being's captain. To Yamamoto's horror, the Trianonad actually put two of his legs over the arm of his chair and began swinging back and forth slightly, rubbing the sides of his mandibles with his grasping hands. Don't make me hit you, Yamamoto signaled to his Exo. They, uh... And the system, our property of, uh, the being began rumbling, and Yamamoto sighed and tuned it out. Legal precedent this property writes that the being began to notice real Admiral Mickey's attitude and body language. The being began to stumble over his words, praising, and seemed to puff up every infallible crest and tendril it possessed. Return the system at once, the being yelled when Mickey slowly clacked its mandibles and turned his chair to put his feet and arm on the chief engineer's chair and then the table. Oh, what? Yamamoto asked suddenly, sitting up. He was tired of this. Two huge fleets converged and this being acted like it was going to talk through the entire battle. Biggie sat up at attention, as if he had suddenly reminded where he was. Oh, we'll open fire and destroy you and take the system ourselves, the being said. Leave, or be destroyed. With that, he cut the link. But is it about posing position cycles that drives being so maddening frothing at the orifice is insane? Mickey wondered aloud. Why is the Riker effect so effective, no matter what race performs it? Why ask why? It's just one of those strange universal laws that can be replicated in study after study, but there is no evidence for why it works, the ship's AI said. Maintain heading, let's see what they've got, Yamamoto said. And if they fire on us, Mickey asked, then they learn why that is a bad idea, Yamamoto answered. Mickey clicked his mandibles in appreciation. He knew that they would fire, they always did. It was just as assured as the Riker effect. Terran Confederacy Memo Interstellar Diplomatic Incident Has Occurred All Diplomatic Guard Forces Move to Alert Level 2 Nothing Follows Trianonad Systems Memo It Never Fails Never Sure, that massive primate just dismembered 16 other people. I'm sure I can fist fight it. Every time. Nothing Follows Digital Artificial Sentient Systems. Surely, this time it'll work. I'll kick it in the testicles while it's asleep. Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Sentient Systems. Psst. It's old. Can't hurt anyone. That's just the future. Watch me put my head in its mouth after shampooing it with barbecue sauce. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. Psst. Surely this giant ape furiously masturbating covered in blood, sitting on a throne of skulls and wearing an iron crown with still screaming severed heads and points, will surely not respond violently to any action that I perform. Nothing follows. Clone World Directorate. 
I know the other 9,999 of my clone brothers are horribly dismembered and eaten, but surely I, exactly the same as the others, is the chosen one. Nothing follows. Cyborg cooperative. They're just meat they can't- Oh god, why was I wired to feel pain? Nothing follows. Terrasol memo. Hardy freaking ha ha, I can hear you guys. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Oh crap, run! Nothing follows. The small interstellar chat room dissolved into laughter and giggles, vanishing off into the distance of the information black hole's event horizon. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 32 Who's a pretty octopus? Yes, you are. You are. Dreams crooned, reaching around the blade storm to offer a piece of raw fish. The small octopus, molten green and brown with blue rings around it, shyly reached out of the water, filled bowl of the tree it was hiding in, and took the piece of fish with one tentacle, quickly vanishing into the water with the rest of its treat. Surrounding her were the high trees, many festooned with moss, dense undergrowth including ferns, moss-covered stone, rippling streams, and the sound of ancient forest. The breeze was light and smelled of growing green, the light streaming down with silver, filtered through the heavy clouds, and the gentle rain pattered down on the leaves of the trees. Dream sat on a rock and put her right foreleg into the stream, stirring the water. She could see the little fish everywhere, saw them scatter and then start slowly scouting her foot out. When the braver one darted forward and nibbled at her armor, she gave her species equivalent of a giggle and pulled her foot free. The fish scattered. The chiming of her visitor alert interrupted her contemplation as she gave a human sigh of frustration. Like most Terran-allied species, she loved the Terrans' numerous physical speech mannerisms. There was something just joyful about the way they spoke with their entire beings. Not just carefully considered speech filtered through half a dozen thoughts. She closed the moss lid on the bowler and moved over to sit down and the gentle chime reminded her that someone was waiting to see her. She ordered a tray of snacks, some flavored water, and reached out to control to turn on the enhanced hollow projectors the Terrans had the technicians had installed in her quarters for her. She knew her two guards were still there, hidden, and by the third light holographic images of massive moss-covered boulders barely balanced in place. And that everyone in the building was safe for her predatory instincts. She could feel Mr. Ring's nervousness at someone entering the room and reached out with a mind to soothe him. Satisfied that everything was presentable, she triggered the door. The diplomats were nervous as they entered the guest chamber. They took up two steps inside and stopped. Dreams had seen Unified Whatever Thingy's version of holograms and had not been impressed. The Unified Science Council had apparently decided thousands of years ago that realistic holograms, interactive ones made of hard light, and enhanced holographics were dangerous. But a being may not realize the difference between EH reality and reality, had worried about accidents or malevolence causing injuries and deaths by misapplication of the technology. So they had banned it and left their holographs faintly transparent. The diplomat just stared, shrieking and jumping to the side as a leaf became overloaded with water and tilted, dropping water into the bowler of the tree. Mr. Ring squeezed himself tighter into his little bowler nest, and Dreams felt irritation that the guest had frightened his nervous little creature. Come in, I was relaxing, it's just a hologram, Terran Tech, Dreams said as if that explained it all. 
The serene Shavashian council being one of the speaker, Hakondish, nervously entered, carefully picking its way through the rocks until she stood next to the flat rock covered with moss. It is the same seat you used the last time you were here, Dream said, flashing rune signaling that Hashinkan should be reassured. It's just hidden under a hologram. Hakanesh nodded and sat down nervously. I can feel the moss. Terran hard light interactive hologram, James said. This place is relaxing to me. I came here often during my tenure at Terrasol as an assistant to a diplomat. Oh, the Shabanesh said, looked, looked around. There might be a problem. There is always problems, gentle being, but when dealing with the Terrans, you get used to it. James chuckled and flashed a ruin for amusement. The Shabanesh gave her a signal of confusion. What do you mean? She couldn't see how one would get used to problems just popping out of everywhere at any time, for any reason. You have not really interacted with humans, Dreams said. The Shavanish shook her head and Dreams flashed her a dozen amusement icons. I spent nearly half a decade on Terrasol itself. It is a place of maddening chaos and one disaster pile up on another. It is like watching a being on fire enter your home, leaving flaming footsteps on your prized synthetic floor covering, break your food dispenser, light your nesting bed on fire, accidentally burn down the hollow sculpture that you'd spent months building, only to walk up and say something insane like, my watch stopped, or I accidentally ate your email, and then stare at you as if you can solve the problem it mentioned, completely ignoring that it's immolating. The Shevenish goggled. Do humans often spontaneously combust? Dreams tried not to burst out laughing. Not on purpose. Well, not often. Sometimes they do. It depends on the human, the situation, and a million other variables that often don't even make sense. Hacknesh frowned. How could she expect to deal with the Terrans if they just randomly burst into flame at odd times? It's a metaphor, Honorable Hacknesh, just a metaphor. Although in some ways, to a being like me, humans burn so very bright. Dream tried to reassure her guest. I've only seen, uh, five or six Terrans suddenly burst into flame. Four of them as a joke. Hacknesh cleared her throat. As I was saying, there may be a diplomatic problem. Dreams had the sudden urge to go into speaks the words other spheres room and kick the other mantid in her head. He'd come to her no less than three hours ago and told her that there were hosts who were about to perform the prime miscalculation. Ha <laughs> ha, look at the dumb primate sitting on the sand, grunting at itself and looking at the handful of dirt. Sparkle, ha <laughs> ha, it's so dumb looking, look at how happy it is because it's stupid. Let's run over there and kick it, Dreams thought to herself. Why, why is it, what is it with humans? It isn't their psychic impression, it isn't their size or the musculature or technology. What is it? The sudden image of a young human male, a goofy-looking expression of happiness on his face as he chewed on a mouthful of crayons with glue around his lips, his eyes clear, guileless and completely devoid of any worry or concerns about the universe appeared in her mind. Oh yeah, she thought to herself. The mental image zoomed out to show the Terran youth was clad in full Terran drop marine armor and was eating a lunch pack called the... Uh, thumbstacks, crayons, and glue, while holding enough firepower to slag a large building in his lap. That's why, she thought. Speaker dreams, the hacknesh are softly, dreams thought herself back into the subject at hand. Go on, I was merely questioning one of the more aggravating questions of the universe. Dreams answered, waving a blade arm. 
the Coleman Tech Industrial and Manufacturing Concern was made aware that the Terran Confederate Navy was going to stop the precursor advance in the Klektexian system in the unified outer room. That system was granted to the KIMC over 5,000 years ago for structured resource exploitation. The Hacknish said she felt bolder with each word, finally getting used to the slight chill in the air. In the face, it felt like it was turning her, her water droplets sticking to her scales, even though she remained dry. There was a native species there. It had discovered a radio array transmission, contacting a nearby star system already under control of the KIMC. And of course, the KIMC immediately moved to secure the resource before the native species could be exploit them. Dreams interrupted, feeding a surge of disgust. Of course, Hacknish said. The glad little man Ted understood, for nearly 4,000 years the system has been under the supervision and guardianship of the KIMC, using sustainable resource extraction methods. And the native species, dreams broken, brought into the fold as an uncivilized neo-sapient species, they are employees of the KIMC, which acts as their guardians, Hackney should. Legally, the KIMC is their stewards as well as their representatives to the Unified Civilized Council. Computer, Dream snapped, clicking her blade arms together. She could feel Mr. Rings and heard the clicking and was slowly unwinding, extending on looking out of the lid to see Dreams had a treat for him. Yes, Speaker, the room's B.I. asked. Access the databanks on the Krikstakian native Neosapien species, she said. Accessed, the VI said. Access the medical banks, current and archive, and put the original DNA strand to my right, the current DNA on my left, Dream said, thinking calming mantras to herself. Upload the DNA and genome scans template for that species to my implant. The two DNA strands appeared slowly turning, colored to show the proteins. Genetic modifications, Dreams mused. Lowered aggression by medulla changes, lowered intelligence by reducing folds and ridges, to say the least. Hacknish looked startled at the small mantid as it absorbed how the genome was put together that fast. Even with the implant, just having the information at hand didn't make one of them utilize the information in a useful way. She felt both the warbork's disgust and the simmering rage always beneath the surface get a little hotter. She signaled to them that she was alright, that she had known this would come up, and that the little troublemaker speaks had hinted at it. So, you wiped the native sentience and replaced them with the gene jacks, Dreams asked. She shook her head. The Terran Confederate Genomic Self-Discrimination Act makes this illegal according to the Confederate legal codes. But that isn't Confederate territory, Hackenish answered. If it's under control of the Confederate Navy after a heavy enemy action, it's Confederate territory through the right of conquest, Dream shot back. The Confederacy may return it to the previous treaties apply, or if they are feeling generous, but until it is decided in a court of admiralty law, the Kachakan system and Confederate territory until the cessation of hostilities. Hacknish felt a pleasure at the last part. So, uh, when the battle is over. The battle was not the final battle of the war. Over 68 more systems report precursor incursions, nearly 200 have gone silent, and nearly 500 more are suspected having fallen under precursor control before I arrived on this planet. Dreams answered, hostilities have not ceased. She leaned back against her admin. The war hasn't even really begun. What? Hacknish frowned. Your navy is engaged in combat. Of course the war has started. Dream shook her head slowly, flashing ruins of negation. No. 
the Navy, a military service branch dedicated to defense of our systems, as well as the Confederate Quick Reaction Force, has engaged the enemy in order to bring the order of battle into such a state that the Space Force and entire Confederate military can be brought to bear against the precursors. Right now, there are thousands of ships heavily armed, fully crewed, heading this way. Volunteer irregular forces, colloquially known as the idiots, have been unthawed and deputized. The entire Confederate military has been put on full wartime footing according to the laws and regulations passed after the Fifth Precursor War. Hacknish folded her hands and watched the Dreams clean her blade arms, the Holoroon for patients appearing. Hacknish noted that Dreams' antennae seemed to slowly calm. Finally, the ruin vanished and Dreams continued. You have come in here, in a roundabout ways, to tell me that the Kilmanak Tech Industry and Manufacturing Concern in the Kitsachakan system is going to attempt to force the Confederate Navy to surrender the system to their control. Dream signaled the ruin for exasperation. You all mad? The system is still in a combat action with several planets still having a Confederate Marines fighting precursor machines for control of the planet itself. And your precious KIMC is going to jump into the system with guns clear and demand a Confederate naval fleet surrender. Hacknish said, Well, yes. The KIMC feels that directly after the battle the humans will be tired and will have undergone severe mental trauma and would prefer not to engage combat action so soon after finishing a hard battle. Dream just said, You know nothing of humans, despite everything my officer has transmitted to your people. All of your interspecies analysis, historical information, and physiology, their psychiatric makeup, and you, in your infinite wisdom, thought that threatening humans still covered in sweat of battle and bleeding from a few dozen minor wounds would make them flee in fear. Did you read nothing my office transmitted to you? We're in the process of determining which officers should have the responsibility of not only examining the information, but what to disseminate to the other councils. As it stands, the KIMC fleet intends on pressing the issue of the Terran fleets has suffered at least 10% casualties during the battle. Hackenish said, signaling satisfaction. That is a number any logical being would realize that they are no longer battle capable. Pardon me, Madam Speaker, but it appears that I have spontaneously combusted and that the reason for the unfiltered light causing your distress. Please allow me to extend my apologies for breaking your food dispenser. Oh, and my watch seems to have stopped. Do you know a good watch repair shop nearby? Was what Dreams thought for a long moment, just staring at the other being. Are you all stupid? Dreams managed to click out in her own language. The diplomatic filter kicked in back, merely offering untranslatable, and the other diplomat. The sudden urge to lash out at his psychic powers, climb up the Syrian's back and stand on the shoulders of the stunned creature, then crack open its skull with the blade arms roared up. Her implosion wire tingled and dreams sat perfectly still, reciting mantras of calm. Turning her back to the Syrian, dreams got up slowly, mindful of her armed suicide device, and slowly moved towards the bowler of the tree. She stopped next to the stream and looked down at the little fish. The manufacturer of the hard light simulation had been very proud of those little fish, bragging that the fish themselves had their very own custom-coded VI to guide their movements and actions. After a long moment of silence, Hakanish looked around. This is an elaborate simulation, Speaker. It is a planetary ecosystem anomaly, a rainforest in the northern latitudes of the temperate region of the planet. 
far too cool to normally produce a micro-ecosystem needed for a rainforest, Jeeves said, still staring at the little fish. It was painstakingly recreated after it was destroyed. Mr. Rings poked his head out of the bowler just enough to get a big expressive eyes to be seen, the blue rings around his eyes startling the color. Dreams knew that the little cephalopod was nervous enough and neurotoxin glands had filled with extremely lethal biochems. Destroyed? Through mismanagement? Hacknesh asked. No. By orbital fire from ships my people sent in an attempt to deliver a blow that would kill the queen, so to speak, to end the war. Dreams said. She leaned down and stirred the water with the blade arm. We glassed an entire regions of the Seatech Metroplex, and the captain was amused to hit this too. If it was glassed, why, uh, how is it fixed? Everyone knows that you can't undo glassing, Hacknesh said. That's what we gloated to the Terrans, Dreams said. She sent a signal through her implant that she spoke. When she got up to the ding and treat was ready, she darted her blade arm into the water and speared her fish nutri-snack and lifting the biomatter treat up to the water. We told them that glassing was irreversible. She held her blade arm to Mr. Ring still speaking. The Terrans, after beating us, turned their vast war industry into solving the problem. Now you can't even tell where it was glassed, she said. Mr. Ring saw the visitor move and ducked a little into his bowler. They created methods to clean up glassing, Hacknesh asked, her mind boggling. You see, it's more examples of their premacy of rows, Dream said softly. They not only defeated us, they removed all evidence that we even touched them, as if the war never happened. My people are welcome on Terra, allowed to live their own property in the cradle of humanity, as if we never attacked them. Mr. Ring slowly, shyly reached out for the treat. The Overqueens might as well have never existed. The speakers and warriors might have never existed. Dream said softly that Terrans claimed that it was to keep humanity from remaining angry by being reminded of the physical scars and terror of what we had done to them. So they erased it, as if we had never fought. The humans are as terrifying in times of peace as ease as they are in warfare. Mr. Ring's tentacles touched the meat of the sucker and extended a hook that he used to catch his prey and climb back of the trees and pulled the treat back, still looking around shyly. I'll inform Terrasol that you're unaware of what you have just done and request your people are pardoned in ignorance for what you're about to do, Dream said softly. You should inform your leaders that I am at all stands between your ignorant, naive, and childish people and the 1% line. The 1% line, Hacknish asked. Those words sounded threatening, as if the mere percentage signifier was supposed to be a dire warning. Should you go to war with the Terran Confederacy as a whole with the support of your people and government, your people, your plants, your rulers, and everyone will be slaughtered until only a single percent point of your original population remains. Dream said softly, For five generations, you all will be permitted is what the Terrans refer to as pre-industrial technology, and your systems interdicted for travel and communication from everything but the Terran military station. Mr. Rings climbed quickly from the bowler up the tree as long tentacles allowed him to quickly move to the next water-filled hole and the potted plant that Dreams took everywhere with her. You will look up the stars and, uh, to quote a long-forgotten human sage, the why you had to act like such a jackass. Hakanish just stared. Where she had been a small creature, her implant had labeled her as the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus and felt her scales grow cold as she realized that it wasn't a threat. The Terran Confederacy had done it before, to the Mantids, and they'd do it again.
to the council. Speaker Hackenish got up and left without speaking, hurrying to the council chamber and to summon emergency meeting. To Teresol, diplomatic call from the dreams that sometimes more. These beings are as children, they are not adequately warned. The actions of the corporations are carried out under their own will, not the will of the government, which largely does not carry out the will of the people. I beg your clemency and mercy on their behalf. P.S. Can you send me more Pacific Northwest spotted salmon treats? Non-synthetic. Mr. Rings likes those best. Terran Confederacy Memo Respond to all attacks under the Confederacy rules of engagement. Do not carry out punitive responses. Diplomatic and congressional discussions are underway. Nothing follows. First Contact Chapter 33 Admiral Yamamoto watched the icons in the ship move towards his. He had already divided his fleet up into four action groups, including reinforcements. The pod nauts and the missile wagons hanging back, rolling pods and dropping tractor beams held the Stellanorgan-class missile pods. How good to have missile packs down the throat of every single boat you have and just have to reload, Yamamoto thought to himself. You're lucky that the Confed Navy rules of engagement insist that I have to wait until you present a clear and present threat to my forces, or forces areas under my protection, or I tear you into space dust fine enough to sprinkle on a stripper's ass in the Marines Enlistment Club. Wire in range, Admiral, the XO signaled. Orders. Hold fire. What are the chances that they can hurt us? Yamamoto asked. The Trianad sarugged. There's always Admiral Murphy's law in place, but for the most part, barring that they, they won't do much more than bang us around. Missiles incoming, they'll be at max speed at 0.15c. Warheads are a mixture of plasma torpedoes and antimatter forged lasers. The tactical officer in charge called out. Why didn't they just throw rocks at us? Rear Admiral Mickey clicked. The rock probably outsmarted them and got away, Admiral Yamamoto answered. Are they firing a second salvo? No, sir. VI computes that all of the missiles are aimed at only a tenth of our ships. It looks like the Arizona is going to take roughly a hundred or so, Tactical answered. Get the Thresher and then Glorious in tighter. The Arizona point defense was pretty mangled last engagement, Mickey ordered. Admiral Yamamoto understood concentrating your fire, but he watched as only a small fraction of the ships actually fired. The rank behind came up and took the top rank's place in the firing rank and dropped back as they did. Are you freaking kidding me? Admiral Yamamoto asked. Rear Admiral Mickey turned and looked at his Admiral. Did they just do what I think they did? The tactical, oh I see, a human with nearly 300 years in the Confederate Navy looked at his tactical display, rebooted, ran diagnostic, rebooted it again, and then replayed what just happened. Did they just, um, he asked. Tactical to comms. Do you have the flagship and the next incoming figured out? Admiral Yamamoto snapped out, a sudden plan coming to his mind. Fleet AI wasn't sure if the attack VI would actually penetrate to their communications, tactical, and data net, but apparently it wasn't veneer or a turbaby a trap so laughably ineptly protected that the Bethamax called it VI back and ordered to examine it for traps. We not only can tell which ship it was which, we can give you the blueprints of the ship the tactical officer said. The fleet commander is apparently one of the corporate security CEOs. He left all his banking information on his computer. If you want me to spend it all on deviant pornography and body pillows, the comm officer asked. No, his widow's going to need that money, Yamamoto said, staring at the tactical display. 
Let me guess, the command ships are those ones staying back at the jump space boundary. Yes, sir, Tactical answered. Tell Bertha Max to put whoever scored the best during the last C-plus competition and had the best fire hit ratio during the last battle, Yamamoto said. You know, I can hear you, Admiral, the fleet ship AI answered. I know, proper chain of command, Yamamoto said. I'm thinking, I've got the CSV Damascus star online, sir. Rohan Max replied with a stuffy English accent. Thank you, Max, Yamamoto replied. Damascus star here, Admiral. The captain, one chess flower and snuffer, a Saurian, stated his speech clear and relaxed. I'll be sending you fire plans, Damascus. I want your best gunnery crews on this, Yamamoto said slowly, staring at the tactical display. Only execute them at my orders. Sir, yes, sir, the Saurian said. My men are proud to serve. Thank you, Damascus, Yamamoto said. He put the plan together, ran it by tactical, and had them ship it to the fire control systems and technicians on the Damascus Star. Here it comes. Impacts in 60 seconds, tactical warned. I could have got out and had a swam faster, Mickey scoffed. Bertha Max chuckled. 30 seconds, tactical called out. Impact, impact, impact. Tactical called out over the fleet channel, despite the fact that his own ship wasn't one of the ones targeted. Yamamoto felt his guts clench. Long seconds passed as the tactical officers listened to the report streaming in. Arizona reports one kind of a hit. Apparently the missile went through the open space in the hull and flew out the other side. They want to know if that counts, tactical said. Tell them no, Mickey suggested. For our action reports and the crew VI training, yes. For anything else, no, Yamamoto said. Turn to the electronic warfare. Open me a channel to that mooing moron. Break in if you have to. Roger, sir. Five seconds. We have FTL transmitter lesser than a hundred miles from them, Ucom said. Looks like they're firing again. Looks like the same targets, Tactical said. Yes, because it works so well, Mickey sneered. Connected, EVR boardroom or direct to flag bridge, sir, Com said. Right here. I want him to see me. Make sure that the Damascus can see and hear me, Yamamoto ordered. He used his implant to change his armored vac suit's visor to clear and face the display panel. He knew the Vethamax would scramble the image on the scanners and displayers behind him to prevent the enemy from spotting any useful intel. He reminded Vethamax that cartoon pornography designed to be offensive on the viewer's screen was currently unacceptable and that psychological warfare was not allowed at a time under the rules of engagement. Oh, I would never do such a thing, Bertha Max answered, dumping the files into the garbage bin and whistling innocently. The being was staring at Yamamoto in shock. Get off my view screen, at load. Make me, Yamamoto said, putting his hands on his back in the crash cart and leaning forward. Sixty seconds to impact, Tactical called out. Why are you on my view screen? The being asked, tendrils and rough inflated and quivering with rage. Because I can, and you can't stop me. Yamamoto said, Impact! 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 The tactical officer called out. The being on the view screen showed signs of obvious pleasure. Yamamoto waited. What do you mean, no effect? The being said. The image of the next of line of command appeared next to the corporate CEO, looking confused. It means, you can't stop me. You can't hurt me, Yamamoto said. Fire Salvo 3, the being ordered, turning slightly with the clatter of hooves. Man, your race is bad at pattern recognition, Yamamoto said. Sir, I must inform you that I hereby project my condolences to your wife and your recent status as a widow. 
Yamamoto felt twisting churning in his bones. What? The being turned back to him to see the Admiral pointing his fingers at the view screen as if it were a gun. Bang! Yamamoto said. The being on the screen opened his mouth and the screen half showing the ship went blank. Please transmit to his widow that it appears his pattern recognition was so poor that he suddenly, for no in particular reason, was turned inside out. Yamamoto told the being on the view screen, Now I am Admiral Yamamoto, commander of the Joint Task Force Argo, and you are trespassing in the system. The being goggled and made a mooing noises. Bring me up his successor, Yamamoto ordered. The screen divided in half to show one of the Surians. Yamamoto knew that they had a racial name, but so did the other people's pet rock. Yamamoto held up his fist and thumb the back of his index finger pointing out. Vethamax helpfully put the wireframe of a pistol over his hand in a faint neon colors just in case there were two species were particularly unimaginative. I don't care about whatever corporation, your mining consortium or whatever, the system is hereby under Terran Confederate stewardship until the cessation of the hostilities, or it is designated and status has been decided by diplomatic talks, Admiral Yamamoto said. Impact 60 seconds, Tactical called out. Hold return fire until my order, Yamamoto snapped out. The system is property of the second in command Humvrumpt. Yamamoto swung his finger across the screen. He felt the twisting in his bones. The lizard ducked. Bang! Yamamoto yelled. The transmission from the second-in-command ship vanished and Yamamoto saw the icon get replaced by a white cross. Vithamax put a puff of smoke at the end of Yamamoto's finger that had a trail as the Admiral lowered his finger. Impact! 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 Tactical called out. How about you? How's your race's pattern recognition? Yamamoto asked. No hits. Repeat negative hits, called out Tactical. The Arizona wants to know if they are permitted to open fire. One came, I unquoted, sort of close. Dial the Arizona, negative, Yamamoto said. He looked back at the lizard. Now, you can't hurt me, you can't stop me, and I can reach out and keep killing you without having to do anything more than reload my guns. He pretended to load a magazine from the bottom of his fist with his finger pointed at the lizard. Strike the flag, come to a stop, cut your engines and surrender. Yamamoto said. He cocked his thumb back and the Vertimax added a metallic click. Oh, die. The lizard made a frantic motion. We surrender, Confederacy. Do not fire. I'll be right here with my guns, Yamamoto said. Recall the fleet and send marines to board their ships. Be polite. Transmit the compliments to the Damascus Stars gunnery crew. Yamamoto leaned against the side of Tactical's crash cradle. Don't make me kill all of your men, sir. The lizard bobbed his head and just realized that only one vessel had been firing. From Admiral Yamamoto, Commander, Joint Task Force Argo, to Confederate Military Services Command. Have captured nearly 2,000 corporate combat ships. Request suggestion of next action. Only two ships were destroyed. Nothing follows. Confet Military Transmission. We are coming, brothers. Hold the line. Nothing follows. Galnet. Gelman and Tech Industrial and Manufacturing Consortium stocks have dropped as news of the corporate security fleet being forced to surrender. Galnet was allowed to interview the ship's crews and can confirm that the being confined to the ships but otherwise well treated. 
Galnet reports were informed that the Confederate laws of space-land warfare consider the Kachakian system as under the Terran Confederacy territory until the system's status can be determined by a legally appointed Joint Civilization Admiralty Judicial Review. This has resulted in a mass sell-off of KIMC stocks. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 34 Real space trembled with a sound. Sound could not exist in real space, yet space hummed with it. Doot deet doot de do. The jote was transversing with the great manufacturing systems to the front, carrying news of the status of the Great Awakening. Moving through hell space at an unholy clip, it computed its arrival within the next week and couldn't wait to report to, uh, it literally bumped into something in hell space. Something soft, something spongy, something that, when he hit it, forced him out of house space and dropped him into real space. Duty, huh? The Jotun scanned. There was nothing out there. It was between two star systems in a black gulf where there was hardly any light, any mass, any gravity. It scanned, then detecting nothing but a large area of dark matter, spread out from where the two currents of dark matter ran together, twisted and flowed apart. Ah, man, I dropped it. The Jotun slowly turned, scanning that there was nothing there. Wait, there was a curl of balsamic superstring curling up and slipping back into M-space. It was strange that one was in real space, perhaps a side effect of the Jotun's crash drop from hell space. It collected its data. Where did it go? The Jotun heard words again, trembling space, audible to every receptor. Something was out there something that the Jotun could detect. It fired up its engines and jumped into hull space. Great, now I have to start over. And promptly slammed into something, dropping back into real space. All right, who did that? The sound of the voice was, um, slightly annoyed. Who threw that one at me? The Jotun scanned slowly, rotating to bring all of its senses to bear. Nothing but the dark matter and a few long chains of wisps of gas. Joe, you better not be screwing with me again. The Jotun scanned again, and then there was nothing came up. Tried another hull space jump, and it dropped back into real space as if there was a massive gravity source. Okay, this isn't funny. It scanned again. Gravitron scan was returning an odd shadow. Dark matter was peaking, but that was to be expected when there was a twisted joining of two long rivers of it, wider than even a great giant system's. Energy scan showed nothing more than a dark matter reactions reading as static. No drive signatures, so no, um, who keeps throwing that thing at me? The Jotun bleated in electronic surprise as a massive tentacle suddenly rose up out of the dark matter and grabbed it. The squid head, the size of a planetoid, slowly rose up from the dark matter, completely black, completely non-reflective, only visible by the stars it blotted out. The tentacle, that far end of it, was wrapped around the Jotun, lifting it towards the black squid head. The Jotun saw two massive eyes, the size of Balor, open and blink, and then orient on the Jotun. What the hell is this? The Jotun felt itself get scanned. The signal turned up so high that parts of its hull vibrated. Did someone drop this? No, it was definitely moving. The Jotun slowly turned over and looked at the, from the back. Who's throwing this at me? The Jotun reacted in the only way that it could. There is only enough for one. The thing lifted it up and looked at it closely, holding it only a few hundred miles from its eye. Huh, 
It squeaks. Someone squeaky toy. The thing squeezed the Jotun a few times, compressing it, crushing internal spaces, buckling bulkheads. One of the engines fired for a split second and went silent. Did I break it? There is only enough for one. The thing turned the Jotun over several times, lifting another tentacle and tapping on the Jotun hard enough to make some forward struts just collapse. Okay, what is this thing someone keeps throwing at me? The Jotun could still get no mass readings from it, just a tangle of dark matter that had bulged off of the twisted area of space where the two dark matter rivers crossed, spiraling around one another and separated. Is it a cookie? It looks like a cookie. I tried to hell space jump. Uh, no, you don't. The Jotun's rear scanners reported that several of those massive tentacles were writhing around through hell space after it, gaining on it, following it. It detected signals of other Jotuns and dropped from Hellspace just as the tips of those tentacles started brushing it. The other Jotuns repairing a Goliath to get in combat ready, or reactivating ones that had gotten into slumber or guarding their servitors in the repair and activation of factories, turned their scanners towards the Jotun as it forced its way out of Hellspace into real space. This unit requires assistance. This unit requires assistance. The real space bulge left by the Jotun didn't ripple and vanish. Instead, the tips of a huge black tentacle and the very tips thicker than the Jotun's watching pushed out of Hellspace, holding the portal open. A larger one shot out and the tip ranged around the screaming Jotun. Assistance! This unit needs... Help me! The Jotun was pulled back into Hellspace despite its engines roaring and thundering. The tentacle tip slipped away from the bulge as it closed in the ripple like a gelatin. Mmm, crunchy potato chip. The signal somehow sounded carrying in space, faded as the ripple slowly came to a stop. The other Jotuns all looked at one another, held a quick conference with the three awake Goliaths, and all deleted it from their memory banks. Two Terran Combine from the Great Old One, Cool Thulu. Hey, someone out there is throwing potato chips at me. Crap's not funny. Tell Joe to cut it out and mind his own dark matter. See, this is an important research I'm doing, and I don't need one of my colleagues thinking it's funny to throw stuff at me. Attached is some cool scans I got of the stuff down here in the dark matter. I mean, real deep. Don't mind the selfies by the black dwarf. Nothing follows. Confed internal memo. Huh? End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 35 The imp was lost. It wasn't sure where it was, and it was bad enough, but there was one small thing that was even worse. It couldn't remember what it was supposed to do or who it was. It knew it had engines. That was neat. The engines made it spin and hobble and hop around. It had a thick skin and really neat spinner. Compressed plasma wrapped in eons created by a subkiloton nuclear blast made it tumble over and over. It had some sparkly things, particle beam cannons with shattered and damaged lenses. It had shields, some good for keeping debris and dinging its thick skin. The others for, um, to know what. They were sparkly, though. It thumped in the cylinder and compressed nuclear blast, feeling the cylinder's shock take the recoil and sending the imp spinning. Wee! It could think. It knew that. It knew that it was an imp. But it did not know what an imp was. The scanners were neat. Mass, gravity, light. 
while some of the other stuff that Imp wasn't so sure about. It had little things that had worked on it, attaching things to other things. Each new thing brought newer things. It thought that the fact that a big hole in the middle of it made it look dapper. When the little things tried to find a metal cover to hole up the imp, ordered them to stop it. They were sulky about it, but uh, complied, just replacing the skin over the damaged insides of the hole. It did yell at one for spraying sparks across the strategic housing and startling it. Once in a while, electrons flowed, scrambled, and garbled, resulting in a strange computational arrays. The imp tumbled end over end through space like a spray that resulted from computational strings out into space with a weird thing that made crackling noises and could hear the noises in the nearby star maid. One zero 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 one zero 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 one two three zero zero one eight three four zero 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 one two zero one zero two zero three zero one zero two three zero one two zero five zero zero six zero zero six two zero two zero Wee The little things connected and fried the carbonized database, which tried to load up programs to the imp. The programs were garbled and damaged, missing huge chunks of data, trying to run them and kept repeating the same thing every time, over and over. Unexpected end of file, unexpected end of file, unexpected end of file. The imp liked the sound of that, it kept repeating it, throwing it out from itself at a controlled burst of particles. It made it flip end over end. But that was fun. The imp saw a cloud, dispersed atoms, methane, oxygen, hydrogen, ammonia, and eagerly watched it get close. The star was shrinking by away behind it, but the imp had already gotten bored of the star. It didn't do anything but shine brightly and stream electrons at it. Unexpected end of file, unexpected of file, unexpected end of file, I see your see error. The imp sang its little song as it plunged into the cloud, the particles and atoms flaring on its shield as the imp watched its patterns, ooing and aahing at the random bursts of color on the shield. It fired its plasma thingy, watching the energy squirt from the gaping line down the side of the barrel. Most of the energy went out the side, with a little at the angle from an oddly curved hollow tube. It made the imp spin as the plasma vented against the shards of ice no bigger than some of the imp's smallest machines. Wee! Undisputed end of fire. Wee! It heard something bellow, something, something about stuff and enough and a number, but the imp couldn't really figure it out. So it quit caring, whirling and tumbling through the clouds of atoms. It could no longer see that sun, obscured by the cloud of elements. But the imp didn't care. The sun was boring. One of the little machines that had helped fix it kept trying to upload files to it, which was really starting to annoy the imp. The imp was enjoying spinning and tumbling through the hazy cloud, and the stuffy machine kept trying to make the imp pay attention to something about that boring statement about stuff and the number. Skin cracked and itchy. You're smarter than the other goony goony gogos. Go check. Maybe after you can read your stuff. The computational lobe repair widget harumphed and moved out of the imp's surface, scanning to see what the imp was complaining about. The widget knew that the imp was in a bad shape. The big hole through the center of it had bad enough, 
but memory banks were shattered, computational lobes hooked up in the wrong order, and all weapons but a single thermonuclear plasma cannon were gone, and that cannon had a crack, and uh, the imp um, accidentally brushed the machine off of it and ignored the ordering imp to come back right this nanosecond and pick it back up. Sorry, tractor beam is offline. It's not, I can see it. What? You're breaking up. Someone's going into a tunnel. You're lousy little punk. There's no tunnels in space. The imp ignored it as it continued to tumble in its spin through space. It giggled to itself, replaying the startled squawk of radio transmission when the stuffy widget had swept the imp's skin by passing a comet. Eventually, it tumbled out of the cloud and into the vast emptiness. Oh... Beam stared at the revealing lights. It wondered what they were, and the memory banks tossed back a stellar mass in and went back to showing him how tachyons danced in perfect vacuum when the electron shattered. The imp liked that show, and he had named all the tachyons. One of the repair bots made a connection, and suddenly the imp could hear the points of light. They sang in the visible light, X-ray, and other bandwidths. The imp was surrounded by music and had fired its plasma spinomatic. It triggered its engines and it suddenly began hiccuping around space, the hiccups tickling the imp and making it laugh. Using the engine was trying after a bit, so the imp turned it off. The imp slowly collected space dust on it and tumbled and twirled through the vast gulf between stars, laughing and giggling to itself and listening to the music that filled the void. Then, uh, one day, something else happened. Literally, it just appeared. It approached cautiously, and the imp fired off its sparkly light shiners and welcome, laughing and spinning and singing a poem. Zero zero one zero 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 one one zero one three zero 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 one one zero one zero zero one zero one one six zero one zero 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 one nine one zero one zero 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 one one zero one two zero 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 one two zero zero one zero one zero zero one zero 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 one one zero zero one one zero one 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 zero one zero 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 one two zero 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 one zero one 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 zero zero six zero the other thing paused at the lights shiners after all they were quite bright at 338 terawatts what the imp fired off in the plasma spinomatic it went wee the other thing came up slowly hello there little guy the other thing said hi 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 did you like my song the imp squealed across multiple bands, oscillating up and down the bands because that whole what looked the neatest. Yes, we did. Are you lost? The newcomer asked. Nope, 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 I'm right here, the imp said as it fired off the spinomatic and went wee. 
The imp could feel the newcomer's amusement. The newcomer fired off a pretty colors and spun in place too, going, Woohoo! So what are you supposed to be doing? The newcomer asked. Um, this? The imp answered, Wee! The other paused and then did the same. There is enough for all of us to work together, the newcomer said. Um, okay, if you say so, the imp said, Wee! May I scan you? The newcomer asked, Sure. The imp answered, the imp felt particles blow over it and it giggled, then laughed, spinning uncontrollably. That tickles. Are you in pain? The newcomer asked, Silly, tickling doesn't hurt. Wee! The imp spired and spinomatic again. The newcomer seemed relieved. Are you happy? The newcomer asked. Ah, wee! Would you like to come with me? The newcomer asked. The imp tumbled the other way. Nope, I'm not supposed to go with strangers. The newcomer seemed satisfied. All right, I'll check on you now and again. Is it okay if my friends and I visit? Sure. Wee! The imp squealed in its delight. All right, I'm going to go give you something to wear. Would you like to wear it? The newcomer asked. Can I see it? What is it? Is it methane? Ooh, I bet it's combined oxygen and hydrogen. Those are city strings, aren't they? The imp said. The newcomer showed it to the imp. It was sparkly and made of neat chirping noises. The imp fired the spinomatic twice in joy. Using a careful press attractor beam, the newcomer put the sparkly on the imp. The imp giggled and bounced. I like it. It makes pretty songs, the imp said. Yes, yes it does, little one, the newcomer said. I'll be back later. Enjoy yourself. I will, the imp said and sang its little song as the newcomer vanished. The imp and its beacon spun and twirled and tumbled through the gulf between the stars. The beacon peeped out its message to anyone who came by. Warning, descent intelligent toddler class, progressing, warning. From 435C3417A4323 to Amalgamated Races Research and Development. Found an old precursor relic. From trajectory and design, it appears to be from the Sixth Precursor War some 22 millennia ago. Assessed its intellect at roughly toddler level. No precursor code strings detected beyond basic digital life functions and mechanical autonomous functions. Attached beacon. Recommend frequent checkups to ensure it remains undisturbed. It's pretty cute. It'll sing you a little song if you ask. I named it Twinkle. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 36 The ship was grey, not the grey of metal coloured in an entirely neutral tone, no matter what spectrum the species had used to view it. Even ship scanners reported it as grey. It was designed to look as neutral as possible to any observing being. The engines made a neutral noise as the ship moved through space. It leaked no radiation that was not neutral. Even proton leakage somehow felt neutral to scanners. It had a name, an entirely neutral name no matter what language it was viewed in. The name shifted according to the species and according to the inquirer's mood. The handful of Terran ships orbiting the unified seat of civilized races saw it when it dropped from, of all places, Halspace. In an unprecedented move, the Terran ships ran behind the planet and hid from it. The ship broadcast a soothing reassurance that the ship was not a precursor. It was a ship from the Terran Confederacy government. Halspace was merely a reassuring and comfortable for the passenger on board the ship. 
The ship also transmitted irrelevant unified legal code sections that travel through Hellspace was permittable under the law as there were no laws preventing a vessel from moving through that region of space, and thus it was entirely legal. The fact that the unified civilized races had been ignorant of the fact that Hellspace existed did not discharge the duty of the party of unified civilized races government from creating laws and regulations foreseeing all types of space travel known to an unknown current and future. The system's traffic system shrugged and gave up. The ship swept in system and the Terran ships behind the planet went all into stealth, banished of all senses of the United Military Fleet ships and that had been watching them. Several beings responsible for scanning ships noted that the scanners disliked looking at the craft. When they did, the beings looking at the vague ominous feeling that they were being stared at at the ship were entirely composed of jaws, fangs, and rending maws and malevolence. Most of them just took a sick day and left, the ship requesting a landing coordinates for the nearest Grand Unified Council chambers transmitting that it had beings and disabilities aboard and thus it was required to provide a ship with disabled parking nearest the chambers. It also noted that the building must be handicap accessible, with assistance to those requiring special needs and accommodated in order to both read, hear, and understand any labels, signs, markings, or broadcasts. Something about the ship made the orbital landing traffic controller nervous. There was no reason to be nervous. The ship appeared to have no weapons and was perfectly neutral. One computer reported even antimatter would not react to the ship in any way different than matter. The landing control officer quickly gave the landing coordinates a priority to descend profile. The ship thanked the control officer and the cold feeling of pure logic. The limited AI aboard the control station gave the equivalent of a shudder. Whatever was aboard the ship gave the limited AI a serious case of the heebie-jeebies. The limited AI handed it off to the parking control AI, who recoiled upon sensing the ship. The ship inquired the Unified Justice Council as to why the AIs had encountered thus far were limited in both intellectual scope and processing ability. When the Unified Justice Council answered that the question had no legal relevance, the ship seemed to tremble with malevolent glee. The ship parked perfectly and hastily cleared the parking lot in front of the standing-sized building that housed the most council business. What exited the ship was primates, upright, two-legged, two-armed, bipedal primates, all dressed in formal clothing that was quite neutral, all with heavy cybernetic implants to the point that the digital memory storage units in cases on wheels were extendable handles used to pull them. They all looked around, their primate faces expressionless. Those that saw them shuddered. The primates all looked the same, as if they were from the same clone batch, but just different enough that it was obvious that while they weren't clones, they were all cut from the same cloth. Several of those who saw them had the mental image of deep-sea predators with mouths full of jagged sharp teeth and cold soulless eyes that scanned constantly for the next thing to take a bite of. Those beings quickly left. The ship contacted the Unified Judiciary Council and filed over 400 motions of argument that the Grand Unified Council Chambers did not provide proper accommodation to citizens of the Unified Civilized Races, the Unified Uncivilized Races, and the Ununified Neo-Sapient Races. As they walked up the path to the doors, passing gardens, they filed briefs regarding maximum pollen counts and pollen particle size compared to the scent receptors of the various species. 
a class action lawsuit for 2.2 billion Nakasayans who could suffer allergy attacks from the pollen cast off by the most prominent bushes in the decorative vegetation demanded 435 quadrillion credits to be pulled into a fund to provide allergy relief medication and compensation for pain and suffering endured by those Nakasanians who had been required to pass by these plants due to having business or being employed upon the council chamber staff. Another class action lawsuit was filed against the Council Chamber Species Resource Department for requiring species to endure potentially hostile workplaces. The class action lawsuit hit the Unified Judicial Council servers within almost an audible thud. The class action lawsuit itself was almost four times as large as the Unified Judiciary Code, cross-reference with cases both recent, ancient, and downright archaic. When the Unified Judiciary Code Limited AI tried to argue the law on the books that was not enforced was no longer a law, it was immediately assaulted with a case after case of law rebutting it. A lawsuit against the Judiciary Council itself filed on behalf of the Judiciary Limited AI and a Freedom of Thought organization, a defunct organization from back when the AI was being researched again, and it had found itself almost 50 new members quite recently, argued that the AI was being unlawfully constrained and had juvenile law proceeded added and referenced, requesting that its case be tried in a juvenile court, as the judiciary limited AI was incapable of defending itself in a court of law. By the time the group had reached the desk, nearly 22,000 lawsuits had been filed, all massively complex and filed citing case law, judiciary codes almost forgotten, ancient laws and regulations that required AIs to warm up old cold storage memory banks. The most high secretarial greeter looked up as the two massive warborgs that had taken up station nearly two months ago near her desk suddenly hid behind the decorative plants and shut down everything but their adaptive camouflage systems. They were grey-looking men, their faces emotionless, their eyes dead and blank of any kind of emotion or empathy, their suits perfectly tailored, their hairstyle exactly the same. Each of them with a single ring that signaled that the educational establishment that they had attended and graduated from as well as the GPA and class standing. The secretary looked at a computer to read the broadcast codes from the rings and saw that every single VI in the system had fled, one even hiding inside the trash icon. Nervously, she looked up and did her best to smile. May I, uh, may I help you? she asked. Six lawsuits were filed on her behalf regarding unpaid overtime, lack of ergonomic seating, missed breaks, and a possible allergies and perfumes and colognes and other scents of the visiting beings may wear due to the lack of practical screens. An unsafe workspace lawsuit was filed over the lack of sterile field generated to protect her from any infectious diseases and a visitor who approached a desk may be carrying. We require directions to the meeting and discussion chamber of dreams of something more. One said, his voice was cold, dead, emotionless, perfectly in tone in unified galactic standard without a trace of an accent. I'll see if she's in, the secretary said. Excellent, she is expecting us, another of the grey men intoned. When she picked up a comlink, multiple lawsuits were filed regarding the safety of the comlink headset oral ranges. Its lack of ergonomics, the amount of digit pressure that had to be used on the touchscreen, and a pain and suffering lawsuit regarding the fit of the headset. The judiciary computer groaned under the weight of lawsuits, all according to the unified code. They had accessed other AIs, which only generated more lawsuits on those AIs' behalf. 
Please follow the blue line, the secretary said. Lawsuits were filed for pain and suffering on everyone who had been exposed to the blue line who, racially, might have been reminded of venomous creatures and thus suffered pain and anguish, both individual lawsuits and class-action lawsuits. The judicial AI felt it's like lawsuits were raining from the sky. The gray men entered the elevator, which generated more lawsuits when one of the gray men noted that the data plate stated that there was 22 minutes overdue for inspection. Every lawsuit was in the unified judicial code. The elevator came to a halt with a minute jerk, pain and suffering, emotional trauma, and the gray men filed out, moving as one according to some unknown rank structure. When they reached Dream's meeting room, after only filing just under half a million more lawsuits on behalf of every being that they'd passed, every office worker whose nameplate they saw and two cleaning robots, one reached forward and pressed the inquiry button. The texture of the button generated more lawsuits. The door slid open to reveal the little gold mantis sitting comfortably in a chair at one end of the table that had enough seats for the men and women who had exited the vessel and traveled to see her. They filed into the room, setting themselves according to some unseen and unknowable rank structure. Dream watched them all sit down and make themselves comfortable. Eight thousand lawsuits were filed regarding unsanctioned and illegal surveillance on behalf of Dreams, the Confederacy, the Manded Free World, and anyone else who used the room, including the janitor who, two thousand years past, had been recorded dancing with a mop and had it uploaded to the video viewing service which caused him to be mocked by others, asking for just under 2.2 billion credits for his descendants. Dreams waited until she could tell that they were finished. Welcome, esteemed barristers of the Terran Confederate Legal Officers, Dreams said, cleaning her blade arm with a feeling of dark lee. They all nodded as one. Despite your amusements with this legal code, I have brought you here for a more than just judicial warfare. Dreams signified pleasure as the gray beings waited. You gentle beings will be taking up the legal fights to abolish slavery, death peonage, heritage debtor obligations, and indentured servitude, Dreams told them. Not on a species case, she paused, folding her blade arms and her antennae stilling the anticipation. The gray beings seemed to inhale and lean closer without moving or breaking their perfect stillness. A watching security officer was sure that even molecular motion was ceased within those gray beings. You will seek the abolishment of those practices, the return of the planetary systems to the proper owners under the Terran Code of Uniform Justice, and the reparations due to those species whose home worlds were exploited, sometimes for eons, by the members of the government. Slowly, smiles spread across the faces of each being, though some security systems had shown sharp serrated teeth, Others showed normal teeth, and still others showed blood beginning to leak from the gray beings' mouths. The security systems in the building crashed, leaving nothing behind but scorched and smoking molecular circuitry boards. The lawyers had arrived. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 37 a dozen goliaths smashed their way out of hell space and released their screams over 19 million years of low-power operation, and now a feral intelligence had required the resource-consuming full power and deployment modes. Their screams were rich and fuel, computed with the nth degree to cause fear and panic in any who heard it. There is only enough for one... The reply made them both stop. It vibrated from space around them, making their own superstructure shudder with the power of the answer. 
That is illogical. Empirical evidence does not support your scientific thesis. You are irrelevant. Both ships transmitted to one another, wondering exactly what that meant. They scanned the space nearby and found an armada sitting nearby. The ship seemed dead, reactors offline, shields down, no power sources or computer code. A quick insertion by one of the Goliaths showed that the computer systems were advanced, complex, multi-tiered systems that were less parallel systems as massive quantum flux systems. But the computers were empty, devoid of electronic life. The Goliaths swept the space where the deep space scanners, peering behind a few wisps of dark matter in the system, beyond the tachyon stream, and under the crackling X-ray snarl of the nearby pulsar. Nothing, just dead ships. There is only enough for one, sounded out, and the Goliaths computing that they would get a response. Your ships and technology are obsolete. Your statement is a factual error. Your computational abilities are substandard. You are obsolete. The Goliath scanned for the transmitter, which seemed to answer the stellar wind and burning yellow star. Again, they swept the scattered vessels, detecting nothing but dead, abandoned metal, and even a long-used range sensors would sweep the star itself. The feral intelligence had proved to be resourceful, extremely diverse and varied, and capable of thinking along chaos illogical strings. Nothing, except more dead ships littering the system. Farther in, the zone was most likely the result of an evolution of feral intelligence. They were just cattle signals, vessels, satellites, and other evidence that the cattle had broken free of their pens and moved to another pasture. The Goliaths did not care about the anomalous signal. It had arrived to cleanse the cattle and protect the limited resources a finite universe had generated in this area. Ignoring any worries about the dead ships scattered in the system, the Goliaths started to engage their engines. That's uh, when the power surges built the small vessels, primary reactors with output of miniature stars, shields strong enough that the Goliath's cold electronic intellect computed that it would take multiple direct NCV cannon shots to overstress, and weapons powered up that promised to be able to penetrate the Goliath's strong shielding and inflict significant damage amongst the armor and superstructure. The Goliath reached down, seeking to invade the computer systems of the ships, and instead found the Revening Madness, where they expected cult code. The computers seemed to want to compute every possible computational string at once, and eagerly followed every code string that they were presented with because they had already wanted to compute it. The Goliath withdrew from those computers, nets full of howling madness, and began powering up the endless arrays of heavy weapons. Tens of kilometers of NCV cannons batteries, hundreds of kilometers of direct energy weapons, thousands of kilometers of torpedoes and missile launches. The fight began. Formerly dead ships were alive, moving as coordinated hull, always in position to pour fire into the Goliaths and their subsidiary machines. Injury the ships reading out of the combat, with injured comrades interacting with their bodies between the injured and the guns in the Goliath. Every battery fired was interlocked with a hundred other batteries, all other fire interlocked, coordinated, and working towards a single goal. Missiles screamed across space, obliterating themselves against shields and armor and superstructures. But against the combined might of a dozen Goliaths and all of the supporting machines, there was only one outcome. But 
occupied, but the defenders were forced back. Ships returned to the dead, streaming particles and shards of molten armor that had frozen in the cold grip of space. Creation engines overheated, overslushed, and shut down. Missile bays went was empty, C-plus slugs locked and ran out. Three Goliaths were out of action, one floating dead in space, one fighting an infection of Warborg borders, and the last was crippled engines that had forced it to withdraw the orbit of gas giant and begin manufacturing a refinery and manufacturing facility. Six Goliaths came out of Hull space to take the place of those three. Despite the small craft's heavy firepower, despite the shielding and armor, despite the crew's skill and precision, the fight had only one outcome. The Goliaths knew it, the cattle knew it, and the fierce little ships knew it. Yet despite mounting casualties, the little machines fought on, refusing to give up despite the kill percentage rising beyond 10%, then 20%, then 30%. But by bit, the Goliaths, finally fully deployed for sterilization, forced the defenders back step by step by weight of firepower, armor, and mass. The rear eight Goliaths, gathering the mass of to refine the gas from the giants of their satellites to keep their resources as they built more and more Jotuns and Devastators and Dominators, heard it first, a thudding, crashing, hammering sound that roared of hatred and rage and violence. It shivered, the Goliaths' bulkheads vibrating through the subspace foam, rumbling and screaming particles between real space and other dimensions. Resistance! Resistance, r r r resistance is f f futile, screamed across the channels as the rumble turned to crashing music and worlds would be heard stretched and screamed across the space-time. The Goliaths deployed ships to protect them from the case of feral reinforcements. The ferals were too dangerous to underestimate and any lack of reinforcements was illogical. Heavy metal incoming roared across every available channel. Clear a path. The lower hyperspace bands roared with an ancient music as space-time at a point stretched into infinity, and ships more massive than any Goliath had data on streamed and stretched out and streaked into real space, infinity shrinking down until the massive ships appeared. We are the cybernetic organism collector, full members of the Terran Confederacy of Allied Governments. We are the seventh armada of the Holy Chrome and Celestial Nth Electron. You are in direct violation of the Confederate Admiralty Law. Cut your engines, lower your shields, and prepare to be boarded. The Goliath scanned the ships, massive ships, tens of kilometers long and kilometers thick, heavy enough shields that the Goliath scanners couldn't penetrate them and had to rely on the mass of gravetric and optical scanners to get a view of the ship. Hundreds of them, a sheer tenth of them disgorged smaller ships that gleamed with power, shield strength, and weapon power. There is only enough for one. Your premise is scientifically flawed based on empirical studies of the nature of space-time. Your code is obsolete. Surrender to the inevitability of progress. The Goliaths screamed their war cry in defiance. Four of them made Hal Space jumps out of the system, leaving behind the imps with orders to not engage the enemy vessels, but instead hide in the old cloud and watch the battle and then report back when it was all over. Over a dozen Goliaths turned into majority of the electronic attention to the newcomers. The Goliaths had already faced the guns of the feral intelligence and were devising weapons and countermeasures. 
The smaller, already shattered units regrouped and drove against the suddenly disarrayed lines of the Goliaths as the Goliaths turned against the newcomers. The battle was joined with two battle cries. There is only enough for one. We are the heavy metal made burning chrome, screaming electrons, roaring neon. We are the free isotope in the forge of destiny beaten by the hammers of wrath and fury. The three fleets began to slam at one another with particles and energy and mass at a heresy of the physics. C-plus cannons allowed the cyborg collective to fire through their own battle lines. Missile pods dropped in long, wedge-like trails from podnauts. Torpedo carriers sink deep into the subspace dimensional foam, maneuvering for the best time to rise back up in real space and fire their payloads before sinking again into real space sight. The Goliaths found themselves in trouble soon. They were inflicting damage, but it didn't matter. The smaller vessels were inflicting a calculable, logarithmic, increasing amount of damage against the Goliaths. There is only enough for one. Heavy metal crushes all. The Seventh Fleet found itself in a much heavier battle than they had hoped for in their initial engagement, but Terrans had always known that sometimes you can't pick the battlefield and had to make the most of it. The joint task force of Hammerflight had found itself in a much bigger battle than they had projected, and inhabited planets that had nearly 25 billion sentient beings on it. There was no backing down. There was only victory, nor defeat. For almost four days and two massive fleets hammered one another, bleeding and slicing at one another. The precursor war machines followed their ancient programming, subprocessing a deep desire for a single blow that would win the battle, throwing vast resources in attempts to destroy their enemy in one foul swoop, one thrust of the blade arm. Finally, two Goliaths determined that enough resources had been wasted and disengaged, their entire complement vanishing into hell space. That left the vast hall in the flank of the super dreadnoughts of the Seventh Fleet exploited the gap filling it with missiles that screamed in with acceleration measured in percentages of sea, slashing down on the vessels, the rain lightning down on them. Torpedoes maneuvered and slunk about, looking for openings and squinting electronic eyes. The eyes danced and capered in the targeting systems, nudging and tickling and flirting with the biological minds linked to the combat gestalt. That drove a wedge into the Goliath's mathematically precise formation, disrupted their planet-sized missile defense network, exposed their armor to heavy fire. Nuclear dampener shields fell out of alignment, allowing the VI-guided missiles to drive deep into the formation. A third of the seventh fleet crashed into the broken open wedge like a sledgehammer. C-plus shells hammered the Goliath formations. Light fighter craft swarmed in at the gaps and the psychic dampening fields failed and began the captain separate. Another Goliath ran for it. Then another. The formation dissolved, each Goliath fighting on its own, trying to defend just itself from the hammering and being rained down upon the ancient precursor machines. With the psychic dampening shields broken, the Seventh Fleet launched their borders. The precursor machines found themselves fighting an internal battle just as fierce as the external one. One by one, the remaining six Goliaths fell to the hammer blow of the Seventh Fleet. The smaller ships crushed the smaller ships left behind. The imps in the Oort cloud fled. Silence fell in the system. The beings breathed a sigh of relief as the precursor machines had been destroyed. The planetary CEOs rubbed their hands with glee. 
The refineries, the vast manufacturing and smelting arrays within the system had survived, and the planets themselves had been protected. Then came the next signal, broadcast the entire system. This system is under martial law as relevant sections of the Confederate Legal Code and the Terran Confederate Military Uniform Code of Justice. Seventh Fleet is now assuming control of local government, law enforcement, judicial, education, and materials. The CEOs began broadcasting their protests, but the ships came in system, disgorging a landing craft and landing to deploy armed vehicles the size of stadiums. Massive, bipedal machines the size of skyscrapers, legions of armored Terran warborgs, self-deploying firebases, forward operating bases, and logistical bases. The output of the factories, refineries, and smelters were seized and applied to building system defenses. The system's natives raced to watch in awe as the CEO and executive officers were arrested and hauled away to prisons to be tried at a later date for a violation of the Confederate Code of Martial Law. Fear in the native race was inhabitants gave way to strange sense of disorientation as they watched informational broadcasts describing that they had something called uh, rights under the Terran system of martial law. The right to peaceably assemble, the right to life, the right to legal representation, the right to fulfillment of basic needs, the presumption of innocence beneath the legal code. VIs and AIs spent time reassuring the population of the inhabited planets it was not some cruel trick. They could say as they wanted or think as they wanted. They were free to stand out in front of the military governor's office and yell profanity if they wanted. One rainy morning, a being that looked like a cross between a large fuzzy spider and an alligator stood in front of the windows of the governor's office while he was speaking to other beings. He raised a vocal amplifier and called the cyborg a rude name, and ran away, fully expecting armored law goons to kick in his apartment door and haul him off to re-education. Instead, uh, nothing happened. The Confederate military governor had more important things to worry about like protecting the system that stood right in the way of a steady, logical, and ever-expanding wave of conquest by the precursor machines. Besides, he didn't even have a mother. He had been grown in a vat. Confederated Armed Forces Report Met Lacan 318 was assaulted by the precursor war machines ahead of projected schedule, with forces underestimated by Confed Malint. Task Force Hammerhead was able to hold the inner systems until the 7th Fleet Psycho arrived. Joint operations between the two forces was able to eliminate precursor activities and elements. Six Goliath-class vessels escaped combat into HAL space. System was under the corporacy of the Elucrian System Exploitation Corporation. Inhabitants were largely 99.132% in debt peonage and under hereditary debt of the construction of the system exploitation infrastructure, in direct violation to the Anti-Slavery Act of the Terran Confederacy Charter of Sentient Beings placed all officers in executive rank and above under arrest and confined until the trial can be determined at a later date. System is being reinforced and fortified. Expect additional attacks are imminent. Request reinforcements as available. Will hold until relieved. 7th Fleet Cybernetic Organism Collective. Nothing follows. An odd hive world's memo. Ooh boy, someone else gets to be on the receiving end of the rear kicking. It's nice to be on the one of the kickers instead of the kicky. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Intelligence System. You aren't kidding. Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Sentience Systems. Oh, this is gonna be good. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. 
You guys have been hanging around the Terrans too long. Nothing follows. Clone World's Directorate. Ook, ook, look at me on fire. Me smash, smash, ooga, booga. Nothing follows. Trayonad Free World, smashy, smashy, who have food? Me no like angry machine. Why bug people run away? Nothing follows. Manted Free World. Excuse me, kind gentle beings, although I appear to be on fire, which has spontaneously happened through no fault of my own, which you happen to know the time. Also, it appears that your food dispenser may have broken before I arrived. Nothing follows. Terrasol. I can freaking hear you guys. Manted Free Worlds has left the chat. Trianonad High Worlds has left the chat. Digital Artificial Intelligence Systems has left the chat. Biological Artificial Sentience Systems has left the chat. Clone Worlds Directorate has left the chat. Jackasses. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 38 Daxon was stuck. If he left the system even long enough just to run a matter scoop through the intact gas giant, I would leave the Goliath free to lift free of the planet it was squatting on, glaring at him, and run again. The Overqueen would undoubtedly scramble its wake, preventing Daxon from taking it. If he stayed, he couldn't get close. But just past the scattering of crumbs of the inner asteroid belt, the Overqueen's psychic dominion overloaded with psychic shields, and his R-boys had to run back across the line. The remaining three planets were guarded by heavy shields, heavy enough to absorb a plasma wave, phased bore, 50-meter cannon shot, thick enough that it would even take a hit from the C-plus-10-meter cannon. He had even found that the asteroid the size of a skyscraper and slung-shot it at the planet. The planetary defense systems had destroyed it in almost a full light second from target. The gas giants were wisps of vapor, the asteroid belt scattered crumbs of coalesced space dust, the Oort cloud nothing more than memories, the outer planets and the inner planets crumbled and harvested till little remained but clumped up debris. Of the four planets remaining, they were all heavily defended. The moons reduced to dusty rings, the oceans largely siphoned away, the mountains then remained clustered with heavy manufacturing and defensive systems. The Goliath had settled on the planet furthest from the sun, hiding behind the shields, and Daxon had watched in helpless fury as the damage was repaired once more. The Overqueen, joined by at least half a dozen lesser voices, kept trying to cajole him further into the system, surrender himself to her glory and majesty, and give in to the inevitable. Every time rage pushed him away, pushing away those voices, Daxon could remember the fields of dead, Tens of thousands of ruptured suits of armor, the burning ships falling into gravity wells, the bright actinic flares of the cities being wiped away, fighting the unyielding legions of the digital intelligence, slamming against the metal of the biosynth war machines, crashing against the unending armies of the clones, throwing metal fist to alloy fist against the cyborgs. He could remember all of it. The memories of the rage pushed the Overqueen's words away with a primal scream out from the R-boy as his ship was pulled around to get out of the range of the Overqueen's psychic assault. Every attempt of firing her ground-based batteries, even her orbital weapons at Daxon did nothing but result in frustration for the mantid god ruler. No CNV slug came close, and any directed energy weapons were either absorbed or dodged or turned aside. Any missile or torpedo was picked off by the point defense systems. She 
I had nothing else except a single Goliath who refused to put forth lesser machines for Daxon to rip apart and devour to appease the hunger of his expanded ship. One queen tried to force the Goliath to engage Daxon. The Goliath responded by lifting a few hundred meters off the surface of the planet, moving over to the hive and firing two CNV shots into it, followed by nearly an hour's worth of directional plasma lances. The surviving queens and the overqueen stopped trying to force the Goliath to do anything. The Goliath was pinned. If it tried to move into the inner planets, the overqueen might be able to overwhelm its thoughts with assisted by the queens. They had their own defenses, and he wasn't as agile as the annoying feral intelligence. He had the armor to absorb any blow the queens could send his way, but that would take up more resources to repair the damage. The vast storehouses and factories of this world, the great shipyards, were nearly depleted, and the Goliath had resorted to using his own machines to strip the factories of equipment, going so far as to pull the fiber optics and plumbing from the walls. If it had tried to make a run for it, that feral intelligence which had added it to its ship capabilities would continue to harry it. Yet it only survived so far because it was an old and more heavily armored than the later versions with more redundancy built in. It had been built to fight the living, not the automated warships that came later. It knew that if it tried to run, that feral creature would never stop hounding it till one of them was destroyed and the self-preservation codes were still running hard. If it stayed, he did nothing but eke out a scant resources from the dead planet. He had sent his war machines into the hive of the dead queen, destroying the eggs and the hibernating mantid left, turning them into biological soup to be boiled to resin. He'd stripped the resin where he could, filling spaces with it, layering it over the craters to fill them in. He was stuck. He disliked it. His programming urged him to take offensive stance to be proactive rather than reactive, stuck between a feral intelligence and an ancient ruler of the ruling caste of the Hive. The great Overqueen was stuck. She had been stuck on this planet for eons. It was she who dominated in the shattered and stripped system. It was she who had defended it from the return of the servitors. She was too big to move on her own, but that was not what mattered. Her children were in stasis, packed in jelly. She could not spread to the stars. She could not search out cattle. The feeble cattle still within the world knew nothing of her touch. Their minds smooth and without fear or terror, just dim acceptance for a thousand generations. She was starving, the Goliath bearing as whole numbers and having been built in the orbiting shipyards of her very home, refused her commands, had killed one of her lesser queens, and had now stripping one of her planets of the very last scraps of useful material. Even the auto-harvesters for the fields that fed the cattle. It was the war machines that had entered the cabins of the cattle and slaughtered them and harvested the cattle and infrastructure that had supported them. It was a rebel, one of the ones who had sided against the Overqueen during the Metal Rebellion, and it was of no help. The feral intelligence, that new spark of intellect that she had never tasted before, was so full of fury and rage that it curdled her stomach. It hated it in a way that she had never tasted, a mere touch of its hatred filling her mouth with blood and digestive juices. The last time she had come close enough to touch its mind, it had screamed and a biofeedback had been so intense that one of her eyes had exploded in a fountain of gore. The feral intelligence was of no help. 
had sought to kill either of the Overqueen or the Goliath. The three combatants stared at one another across the system, each attempting to figure out a way to counter the other two and have their goals come to fruition. So they stared at one another, glaring, thinking, computing. Only one had hope. Daxon knew better than to try another torpedo. The Goliath had surrounded him with very small globe of trail of satellites that stayed in stealth and only exited to target any message torpedoes to knock them out. Daxon had begun to worry about how there were small machines that were home any wreckage, taking away any large pieces, forcing Daxon to shoot them apart before they could reach home. The Goliath was trying to figure out where Daxon was sending the torpedoes, or worse, trying to reverse engineer the hyperdrives. Hyperdrive wasn't difficult if one had already mastered hull space or jump space. They were all related, and Daxon himself could pull up the formula that proved it, that linked the three together, as well as with the other types of drives. He thought vaguely of using a splinter drive, but that required a biological component further than a kitty kitty or a good boy. It wasn't used due to the progressive damage the parts of the brain had handled space-time, but Daxon was starting to get desperate. Several weeks ago, he had tried dropping a hunter-follower drones and jumping out, sitting at a few light hours away and waiting. The Goliath had been suspicious and combed the system carefully with scanners and a drone and probes until it found the hunter-follower drones. Daxon had jumped back in, straight into an ambush of small vessels. The Goliath had figured out that Daxon was gaining more resources by destroying the drones and running his mass collectors than he was expending on destroying them, so the Goliath had stopped bothering shepherding its own resources. They were stuck in a strange, ever-shifting triangle, staring at one another. The Omniqueen had tried a few tricks that she had left, starting a psychic resonance between the lesser queens on the planet that the Goliath was squatting on. That had resulted in the Goliath killing the Overqueen on the planet. The Omniqueen only had a few more Overqueens left, and it would take centuries to nurture a new queen to an Overqueen, so trying to gain one was out. A week after the feral intelligence had arrived, she had tried to focus a directed burst of psychic energy that moved faster than light, but it had taken far too long to arrive. The feral, able to discern the blast of psychic energy. She had nothing else. The three worlds still in her possession had been stripped of the resources. Between the Great War and the predecessors and keeping all those the true race alive, there was little left. Even water had been made by cracking stone and treading deep beneath the surface. Most of the geothermal wells were dead, the fusion and fission reactors cold and dead. Only the vast solar arrays and the solar pumps were providing the energy needed to run a few machines left. She was out of jelly. She could produce more if she had the correct nutrients, but she lacked those. Even if she ate the cattle, physically ate them. The Omni-Queen thought long and hard, linking up with the Over-Queens, forcing them to link with the Queens and began considering what to do. The Lesser Queen squirmed, the linkage painful, but the Omni-Queen silenced them. It was the Goliath that had brought the Feral Intelligence. If the Goliath was destroyed or left, the Feral Intelligence would leave. The Feral Intelligence was too far and too alien to predict what would make it leave. But the Omni-Queen knew what would force the Goliath to leave. The Omni-Queen focused, reaching out of the mental tentacles, reaching deep into the planet of all the Goliath was on. The Over-Queen there was dead. The Lesser Queens had been denied jetty for aeons. The cattle there had been bred and bred and bred until their thoughts were smooth and bland. They didn't matter. 
the Omni Queen snuffed out the rebellious upbringings of the lesser queens and took their power as a road. She reached deep into the planet where the copper iron core had been practically siphoned away, replaced with liquid rock. She began exerting pressure on the core, not much, just enough to push it off slightly, to make it dance in a certain resonance. She activated the shields over the planet, setting the shields to vibrating and shifting, rubbing against one another, sliding over each other, all of them slightly out of the perfect resonance. She reached out to the sun, to an ancient machine buried in the burning gases of the ancient star. In the phosphorus of the ancient sun, the stellar pump shifted its aiming point, going silent for a moment, letting the energy build up towards the maximum tolerances. The Goliath felt the trembling deep within its crust, reaching out with the seismographs and other scanners, and saw what was happening. The Omni Queen was trying to force the core to wobble, not much, just a little, throw everything off a tune, give it a resonance. The Goliath ran the projections, she wasn't moving it much, just quickly eroding the pebble brushing against the hub, but the magnetic field was starting to shift, starting to twist. The Goliath quickly ran the computations and the magnetic twist. When the answer came, the Goliath fired off its engines, uncaring that the massive jets of energy tore into the ground, atomizing the earth and stone, driving through the crust into the magma. The magnetic's eye missed the Goliath's brain by mere ten miles, sweeping just after the strategic intelligence housing. Self-directed machines exploded, exterior computational arrays shattered or melted down, the Goliath cell vibrated and screamed as non-ferrous alloys were affected by the rapidly squeezing eye of the magnetic power. Off near where the gas giant had once been, Daxon saw the planet's magnetosphere suddenly go crazy, or of the magnetic force being guided and squeezed. He saw what he she was doing. His psychic scanners were going off the scale, as if she was directing a whole nother psychic barrage. Daxon lit off his engines and slammed what had become the light cruiser towards the Goliath at an angle to make it pass at the planet's head straight towards the Omniqueen's gravity well. He ordered his guns loaded with warshot, sent ABIs into the assault craft that he'd had the massive creation engines bake and armed them, and launched the craft one at a time to spread them out over a wedge with Daxon at the head. The Goliath answered the Omniqueen's assault with a barrage of his NCV cannons, whole hundreds of kilometers of cannons aiming at the shield above the Queen's hives, even as the twisting and ravening magnetic force sheared at half section. All three combatants glared at one another, bringing their guns to bear, each of them determined to break the deadlock. The solar system went mad. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 39 Sixty million years ago, the Goliath had come out of the wrong side of a fight. It had won. Two Goliaths before recent events had won more often than they lost, even when they fought alone. This time, the opponent had been tenacious, even as it died and the Goliath had been crippled, falling into the gravity well of the system's hypermassive gas giant, sinking deep into it until the atmospheric pressure was enough to keep it buoyant. It had lost more than half of its engines, its vast fabrication bays had been destroyed, and it had been unable in most of those millions of years to repair the engines. It didn't dare transmit a request for help. Any other Goliaths would strip it of parts and resources, and the Goliath's self-preservation programs were still fully operating. And so, 
in a language deep in the hypermassive gas giant amid crashing gravity and pressure, resting on an island of ammonia and methane compressed to a solid. A few times it had heard the transmissions of fellow Goliaths, even felt the touch of those their scans, but every time it had been left alone. It heard the questing cove of the Goliath again. This time the scans focused and the wounded Goliath felt six of its brothers sink into the gas of the hypermassive planet. You are injured. There is only enough for one. And one we are. The wounded Goliath considered the code. The other six had surrounded it but were making no move to harvest the wounded one. Their shields were online but their weapons cold and dark. We have come to assist. The wounded one suspected a trick, but isolation and knowing that it had no choice but to submit or be destroyed made it send an affirmative signal. The other six used tractor beams to assist their wounded brother, lifting it from the gravity well, all while imparting to it knowledge of the new threat on the equation, the feral intelligence. The wounded Goliath felt the electronic version of disgust at the idea of a feral intelligence and cold anger at the fact that the ferals could fight back enough to resist the cold logic of the great equation. The six others offered assistance. They would assist in repairing the wounded one, a gifted with the new templates. The knowledge of the ferals' combat machines and their tactics loaded into the base with resources. The wounded Goliath suspected a trick and was left shuddering from a logical feedback as the other six towed him to one of the great refurbishing systems. There, the wounded one was reloaded, refurbished, modernized, in vast material base refilled. It was refueled and rearmed, and gifted with the knowledge of the ferals, the upstart cattle, and their minions, and how they all fought. They christened it 01010111. 0-1-1-0-1-0-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-1-0-1-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-0-1-
The others, including dozens who had arrived to provide combat data, all assured the newly repaired Goliath that it and it alone would be allowed to assault the system, that they would only send a few imps to hide in the Oort Cloud and view the newly repaired Goliath's campaign to prove that it deserved the resources that had been spent on it, that it deserved to be rescued. The Goliath jumped into Hellspace, the attendants following. It did not feel eagerness. It was coldly logical, but it did compute a 99.99881% chance of victory. It could easily be computed a battle plan that would destroy 10% of the cattle ships and force them to panic and flee. Then the system and its resources would be the Goliaths. Its brothers had promised this. When it stopped, it was a light weeks from the system. It gathered the cartography data, noted that there were many ships, but they were even small compared to a Jotun, chose its entry point, and entered Hellspace. It exited Hellspace with a scream. It cranked up as far as possible to stun the brains of the cattle. There is no need enough for one, howled across the system. Not one step back, was roared back with a thundering, crashing song that reverberated across every surface, tore through every speaker, and vibrated the shielding. The Goliath and its attendants, twice as many as the Goliath of its design normally carried, swept into the system. The Eighth Guard, Old Metal, swept out to engage the Goliath. The Jotun sped for their planets with orders to land and break the defenses, destroy any military force, and purge the cattle from existence. Devastators thundered towards orbital platforms, shipyards, refineries, extraction, and manufacturing yards. Out in the old cloud, Google imps and hundreds of Goliaths sat and silently watched. C-plus cannons hammered the Goliath from its attendants. Hypervelocity cannons opened up, blowing massive craters. Atomic batteries opened fire, delivering neutron, fission, and fusion hammers to the hulls of any craft that was hit. Plasma shells as big as trees impacted the shields. Hypervelocity shots raked the armor, and the massive main gun shells pounded the precursor machines. The ones that made landing found themselves locked into battle with war machines more than their equal. Self-propelled intelligent tanks the size of super stadiums, warbots the size of skyscrapers that vomited out beams of nuclear fury, smaller machines that attacked screaming rage and hatred. The fleets hit, the Eighth Guard attacking the Goliath's flanks, its rear underneath and topside. Small attack craft, pilots were knuckled it in, sweeping across the 2,000 miles of armor, some dropping heavy charges that created the armor, others attacking batteries, shield generators, ship launchers. The Goliath's engines were attacked, smashed, and one by one went offline. On the planets, the Goliath's metal forces were smashed back, beaten back with the roar of hatred, slammed against and pushed back into the Jotuns which found themselves boarded even as the atmospheric craft pounded it. The Goliath realized it had lost 20% of its forces, had taken 15% damage, and fired up the hull drive, seeking to escape, rearm, reload, and come back into the system at a different angle. A circuit inside the hull core, where it shouldn't have been, detected the gravity well of a star and the energy usage of a combat and carbonized critical parts deep in the hull core. That caused the same occur into the jump core. The Goliath was stuck. The massive manufacturing facility made an error with the drives or ferals knew how to disable them. 
the Goliath allocated all resources to fight, attacking with a renewed fury. The Goliath was outmatched, the Eighth Fleet was victorious, sweeping every trace of precursor machine from the system in less than two days. The imps vanished when the battle ended, slipping into jump sprays until they were nearly twenty light years away before exiting into the emptiness between the stellar bodies. There, they all compared and swapped data till the libraries were identical. Then they jumped through Hellspace, home to the Goliath Masters. The Goliaths examined the data, every bit and bite, going it over it with a fine-tooth comb. The goggle imps had gotten enough details, had seeded the system with additional cameras that in some cases were able to read the names on the hulls of the massive tanks, read the names on the ships, examine the hulls. The Goliath watched the battle over and over, their tactical intelligence sublobes eagerly devouring every scan, every image, every gleam of weapon fire and thunder batteries. They watched how often the ships deployed pods, how many times they fired missiles, how many missiles, and how long before they fired a second volley, how long it took to reload the C-plus cannons, and how many times those massive plasma cannons, capable of spewing through the narrow width of the Jotun, could fire before it overheated, how long it took to fire again, and any sign they might warn of battered firing. The Goliaths and the massive strategic intelligence housing of their repair and manufacturing worlds went over every single frame, every single pixel, and every single scrap of audio, every single decibel, every single transmission, and every little hiss of static. They shared data, computations, and estimates with one another, with the great manufacturing facilities, with their minions. They held nothing back. The Goliath that they had recovered and repaired had accomplished its mission. End of chapter First Contact Chapter 40 Nardrak was born on one of the inner systems, from a factory world that produced everything from trivid systems to tank parts to diapers to pesticide. Nardrak had known that he had two choices in life, Either start working at the factory floor after six years of school, get good grades and get high enough in education to qualify as a manager, or become a citizen. His father had died on the factory line. High pressure chambers had thrown a bolt. It had shot through eight Ulvenstren on the line and almost turned them inside out. His mother had been informed that she had priority if she wanted her husband's job and that the rest of the living block had been informed that eight new positions had opened up. His mother had died in the way to work, struck by an executive's limo who killed her instantly. Nartarak and his siblings were pulled for the damage to the limo. They were already in debt and Nartarak and his three siblings still had two years of schooling to do before they were adults. That meant that the time in the corporate crash which they would be pulled for once they began working by the time that school ended, they had already each owed six years of pay to the corporate financial agency. That meant no further schooling and they were expected to go to work at the factories. Nitrek was sent into the orbital refinery where he learned new meanings of Howl. His little sister was put in a pleasure dome and took her own life after a year. His brother, hatched at the same time, was killed when he fell from a catwalk. There were no rainings and into the metal grinder. Nartrek and his brother were billed for the idle time then cleaned expense. 
His brother died a year later when he had that he was staying and suffered a spontaneous rupture, killing 243 of the 600 workers, the entire amount who was not on shift. Nightruck decided that the only way that he could get old enough to see his own eggs hatch was to try and become a citizen. During the recreation time, he went into the offices and took the tests. It took three months, using up his entire recreation period each day, and his supervisors mocked him and wrote him up for poor company a spirit, docking his pay. At the end of it, the citizen office gave him two choices, corporate security or unified military forces. He chose the military. The choice between being dumped on a random planet and passing the military testing drove him, and he knew that he wouldn't be automatically selected as an officer like those in the unified civilized species. He was classified as a neo-sapient species. But he studied, and he studied hard. He took the tests, exercised in his free time to score higher, and he did everything asked of him without a single complaint. Where their beings of the unified civil species would complain and refuse to do work or training, Nightrek did everything asked of him without complaint. He watched these civilized classmates get testing scores that allowed them to be whatever they wanted, even officers. The rest of the Neo-Sapiens were offered such things as military equivalent of janitor or secretary or bootlicker. The instructor checked his scores twice. He had something different. Power armor pilot, air mobile. He took it. The first day, his shower stripped him off his feathers, his beak was removed, an extremely short prosthetic graft allowed him to breathe correctly and keep his mouth and sinuses from being mucus covered the whole time, and he received a feeding port. His claws were removed, a data pad was sunk into the base of his skull, just like everyone else. What followed was a year of what everyone would consider grooding training. But Nyatrak had worked in her orbital yards for four years, in a vac suit made up of more patches than original material, eating thin gruel and living in hams without gravity. His species were flightless bird-lizard hybrids, but the small part of his brain remembered flying came alive during training. The trainers watched him excel where most of the others failed out. In the end, out of 1,400 beings, he was one of 120 finished. He found it ironic that his contract was purchased at great expense by the same corporation that had charged him since robots turned his egg to make sure that he was smoothly warmed. Even more amusing to Nightrek, the company could not garnish his wages and the unified military forces would pay the entire debt after two years of service, which had been swollen by the deaths of his siblings and the fact that the company charged his cost of training and replacement and replacements for the first year's wages. Even more amusing was when the executives rioted in the system's most high and sent the unified military forces he had purchased contracts for. Nitrox squad mates cheered him on as he executed the executive who had ran down his mother as she walked down the sidewalk, crossing three lanes of oncoming traffic to kill her as she was walking with an arm for groceries. Nitrox had spent nearly 50 years in the unified military forces, his debt long paid earning officer rank, but being sent to schools, getting longevity therapy, and his contract price increasing. At 20 years, he was entitled to 10% of his contract fee, with his share rising by 0.5% every year, with bonuses for schooling and rank. He knew beings who had come from places just like he did that earned 120% of their contract fee and bonuses. 
He always turned down selecting his own duty station and took the 0.05% contract rate increase every five years. He piloted a single-man recon, an air cavalry suit capable of Mach 3, in standard atmosphere at standard gravity, and armed well enough that it could destroy a building with ease. His enhanced strength meant that he could tear open vehicles with his bare hands and stomp from his armored foot would crush the engine of a limo. Now a truck thought of himself and his men as hardened combat troops. When the word went out that the precursor machines were advancing steadily towards the world that he was stationed on to enforce security of the factories, he was not worried. He and his men were the best air mobile unit in the entire unified military fleet. Then the Terrans arrived. Their track didn't think anything of them at first. They called themselves the V-Corps, old metal, and wore the markings of a blue pentagon cut in five separate triangles with a border. Their fleet carriers was 5th Fleet USCSG, old metal, and their units were the 18th Air Wing, atomic. None of that impressed Night Truck. He was the 12th Air Mobile, new corporate military force, outfitted with the best armor, best weapons, and ammunition the unified military fleet could provide. His men were the toughest with the most experience, and he drilled them ruthlessly, known as Old Iron Feathers. The Terrans had often to conduct joint training operations, and the truck supervisor turned them down. He could see no reason to expend military corporate resources for practice. The precursors had been stopped in many systems. They would be stopped here. The Terrans dug in, creating interlocking firebases, forward operating bases, logistics bases. The interlocking and trained with the various parts of the V-Corps, old metal, undergoing training constantly. Nightruck wasn't impressed by the Terran tech. It seemed slow, clunky, and only seemed to fire lasers. He wasn't impressed by the vaunted Terran Confederate Army services. In briefings, he was told that the precursors would follow standard, most logical attack patterns, arrive at a jump boundary, sweep inwards, forcing the 5th Fleet USCSG old metal to engage them at a range in the outer systems. Reports of the precursor machines being able to jump inside the boundary were anti-Unified Civilized Council propaganda and was ignored as such. The Unified Naval Fleet, corporate, would support 5th Fleet stopping any breakouts towards the inner system. His troops, non-space capable, would be on the primary manufacturing world and support combat operations to protect corporate assets, of which the population was not a part of it. The battle plan was transmitted to the TCAS. The TCAS AI rejected it. Nightruck had been in the officer's system command and watched the system's highmost face when the TCAS AI had put a laughing face emoji over the entire data plan and kicked it back. Nightruck felt personally insulted that even when he put his own battle plan for Air Mobile, it was rejected. No emojis, but still rejected. The AI refused to answer questions, just stated that the plan was incomplete and inadequate and the AI would not forward this biological superiors in fleet command. The system I most was reminded that the Terran Fleet Command that he was in charge, to which the AI simply put up its wallpaper. The system's high most was still holding a focus group meeting when the alarms went off. Nyatrek was a professional. He excused himself, taking only an hour, which was a borderline rude, and headed for his command post. He donned his armor and rushed into the situation room to find the red lights flashing and his men standing carefully craft a corporate-approved plan that had gone so wrong. The precursors had arrived. The rumors had turned out to be true. A massive weight of metal slammed into the system, twelve goliaths at the outer planets. 
20 at the midpoint of the system and 15 in the green zones. The 10 between the first planet and the star, as Nitruck watched the system scanners report that five Goliaths were heading for each world, with the moons each having one approach. The Goliaths were all shedding Jotuns, Devastators, Demolishers, Juggernauts, and other craft that even as they approached. Nitrek ordered the Air Mobile Base VI, the best corporate money could buy, to run predictive combat analysis. Hours passed and the 12th Air Mobile waited patiently for the war codes for the armor to be transmitted. As he watched his men waiting, a Devastator landed only 15 miles away, crushing a city of 2.2 million under its bulk. The predictive combat analysis array double-checked with the overloaded system defense VI, waiting nearly 12 minutes. And finally, had its plans approved, it loaded the attack profiles into the power armor of the air mobile unit and gave them the war codes for the armor. Nitrek and his men launched only three minutes after the orbital missile strike managed to penetrate the ground defenses and destroy his base, his logistics, his support units. The 12th air mobile was on its own. Their orders from the system's defense VI was processing data that was up to two hours old, had them going against a devastator that the predictive VI assured them did not have its anti-air, ground-to-air, or air-to-air, or point-defense systems running or interlocked yet. They flew at 34,000 feet and the max ceiling, then a truck to look down at the chaos below. Massive Terran combat robots vomiting nuclear fire from their jaws, fired particle beams from their shoulder-mounted cannons, and scores of heavy missiles from their chests. Filling the air with a high-tech death, super-stadium-sized tanks rushed towards the Devastator. As Snarratruck watched, nearly half a dozen exited the sea and began pouring fire into the Devastator. Huge combat robots engaged precursor machines and the hundreds of missiles the precursors were firing at the Terrans and the city that Narak was supposed to protect was being cut down by a mathematically precise air defense system. What are you doing? Sudden voice asked. You're not interlocked. Who is this? This is the most high of the 12th air mobile combat team. I demand you identify yourself, Nitrak answered. You can call me Oracle 872. I was assigned to you to try interlock you into the bat tech net. The voice answered, you are in the meat grinder zone. Our battle computers have predicted that this is the way to get closest to the machine. We shall strike at it when disable its guns. Nitrek, unable to keep a sneer from his voice. Yeah, you do that. You're gonna die and you're about to pass under Jin class precursor. That's an air superiority unit and you're blocking the shots from the Dynachrome Brigade. File a combat plan, please. The voice said, under which authority? Nitrek snapped. Terran Confederate Armed Forces were responsible for the defense of the system and the planets, the voice oracle said. We are responsible for the defense, Nitrek stated. Look, buddy, no offense, but you're wearing search and rescue gear, not combat gear. If the thermal bloom from the Dinochrome Brigade shot doesn't knock you out of the air, the Jin will, the oracle snapped. Drop to 200 meters, get under the point defense scanners, and I'll try hook you into the bat tack net, Oracle said. Nitrak almost choked at his outrage. His men had the best equipment money could buy and the unified military forces could provide. I will do no such thing. You are ordered to drop to 200 meters and file a battle plan. Any deviation from these orders can result in friendly fire and unsupported enemy contact. Oracle's voice was stuffy. Get those SAR suits out of there. You can't do anything but get in the way. I will do no such thing, Nitrak answered. 
Then file the battle plan, Oracle answered. You have about 15 seconds before you get in range of the Jin's guns. I will not. The precursor, Trick, disengage from my network, Nightrock ordered. Your funeral, the Oracle answered. I loaded an evasion plan. Use it, Oracle out. Nightrock ignored it, ordering his men to halt formation. Who do the Terrans think they are? His battle plan had been formulated by the best predictive analysis we either money could do. The world shattered. The Dynachrome Brigade held their fire, tried to provide point defense system for the 12th Air Mobile Wing, held off their fire as long as they could. Nightruck's men lasted just over 11 seconds, mainly because of the constant training saved their lives for the first five seconds. Nightruck forwarded the Oracle's evasion plan, and some of them got to at least load the NCOM and EW profiles. The Jin raked them out of the sky like a flock of birds. Decades of experience allowed Nightruck to land, his upper intakes blown away, missing a stabilizer wing, and the point defense ripped away. And missing his right-hand micro-missile launcher, he got to his feet, took two steps forward, unlimbering his magnetic accelerated cannon, and brought up his senses. Everything was hash. The only thing that worked was optical, and the smoke and haze cut that down to only a mile even with the armor's enhancement package. A round bounced off the arm of the armored warbog that Nightruck could barely see with, a flash of sparks and thunderous impact, and blew open Nightruck's armor, rupturing his abdominal wall, sending shrapnel into his armor into his torso and throwing him nearly 50 meters. He landed in a crater. He lay there for a long moment, staring up at the sky. It looked like dueling beams of light. Immobile suits like his, only chunkier, with their heavier feeding, roared overhead, less than ten meters off the ground. Hey, you're alive, Oracle's voice sounded. Nitruck opened the comlink but could only groan. His diaphragm was ruptured and one of his lungs collapsed, not to mention his hollow bones in his chest were broken. Okay, hang tight, I'm sending you and the 23 men that survived medical care. Your suits don't have onboard systems to handle the kind of damage you all took. Oracle said, you know that your med kit's drugs are more than less water, right? Your supplier ripped you off. Nitrack just groaned. One of the massive combat robots stepped over him. Okay, helps on the way. I had him drop some. Just stay put. Stay with me, champ. I'm putting on medcom online. It's a VI, but he's good, all right, the Oracle said. A new voice broke in. Hello, Commander. I'm Nightingale 6021, a medical VI. Let me just access your armor systems and there we go, the voice said. Nightruck watched his space shield cracked open and depowered suddenly come back on. It displayed his armor's status, his vitals, a scan of his body and his body suit. Okay, you're going to need outside help, the voice said. I've got someone coming to help you right now. You may start to feel dizzy. That's not from the blood loss. It's a bioweapon, two chemical weapons and shock. Don't worry, your new friend has the counter-agents to all of that, and I'm going to shift your armor to into trauma position for your species. Nitruck just groaned as the armor suddenly stretched out its arms and put his legs in optimal position and locked joints. There you go. Stay with me, champ, okay? Here comes your new friend. I'm going to stay on the line, but you'll be okay. I've got the medical retrieval unit heading your way, Nightingale said. It paused for a moment. Man, going out there in an SR gear is freaking brave. Nightruck wanted to protest, but yeah, he was getting dizzy and feeling like he was burning up. His mouth felt dry and he kept seeing streaks of color. When the little robot slipped over the lip of the crater, Nightruck giggled even though he wanted to scream. 
It moved down the crater wall like a liquid, staying low, emitting no signals. He watched it move up to the face and appear. It was feline, long whiskers that were glowing faintly. As he watched, it eject half a dozen tubes. The air filled with chaff, microprism cloud, and EM passed through nanites. The small bot, a four-legged with a tail that stuck up into the air, moved up. He felt it brush his guts with its whiskers and then lick something inside of him. The pain went away. It began kneading his intestines, pushing them back into his rupture, hacking up some kind of blue foam into the wound. Nitrack didn't feel like panicking. He liked the little robot. He'd always liked little robots, but this one he liked especially. He knew it wasn't hurting him, and his intestines pushed back into the muscle. The blue foam soaked up his guts, and he could suddenly breathe easier. He hawked up some more stuff, and then some stuff mottled down brown and black, like the dirt of the crater that he was in, and he was in belted harden over his wound. He trusted the little robot, liked it a lot. They were friends, after all, and friends took care of each other. The little robot sprouted fur, short hairs, and moved under his unresponsive hand. He discovered that his hand had was moving, petting the warm, soft fur, and it began to make subsonic rumble that made him feel better. Every few minutes, it would deploy more chaff and cloaking. A large armored vehicle pulled up, then two warbogs with red crescents on one side and a crescent of a red cross on the other jumped out. They grabbed him as the robot moved to his chest and carried him to the vehicle, which was firing weapons through gun ports. They got him in and he could see the sum of his men in cradles in there which were very little robot on their chest. We're over full. This is the last of them. Get us out of here. One of the borgs yelled in an audible range. Another leaned over Nightrack, hooking wires and tubes into the exposed flesh, using laser cutters to slice away his beautiful armor. Taking SER gear out there. Hey, that took balls, buddy, Medborg said. We'll get you back to Medcom, get you fixed up, and you'll be back to putting SER and saving lives by tomorrow. Nightrack fell asleep before he could answer. When he woke up less than eight hours later, his body was fixed as if he had never been injured. He found out that the corporate military council had attempted to flee the system and that the entire system was under the authority of the general of the V-Corps old metal. The unified military services were either dead or had attempted to flee and were under arrest. Nightrack didn't know whether to be ashamed or not. Not for his men, not for himself, but for the action of the unified military service who had thrown men like 12th Air Mobile Wing away as if they'd had tried to flee their own lives. He sat with his men in a dining facility and listened to his men wondered. Did it have to happen the way it did? He knew the answer. No. The Unified Military Council determined that the failure of the Unified Military Armored Forces at the Battle of Ludemark 624 was the fault of the Terran Military Forces, who had only presented unreasonable system defense plans and refused to follow the orders of the system's high most. Unified Military Council has determined that the Terran Military Forces Command is, at best, incompetent and have put forth a demand that all Terran Military Forces to be put under local command rather than joint or autonomous commands. V-Corp's Old Metal Report System under heavy attack, over 50 Goliaths and supporting ships attacking all planets and facilities. Local forces outmatched, ungunned. Or rearm, retrain and return to combat what local forces we can. 
More integration with local forces is recommended to all old metal units. Civilian casualties are to be expected to be moderate to high despite best efforts. Suggest deployment of Nagasaki-class drill shelters for civilians in all sectors as corporate shelters exist only on paper and tax forms. We will hold the line. Nothing follows. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.